Okay, assalamualaikum and welcome back to another Project Element of Seer. Uh, today we're going to do Surah As-Safat, which is number 37. I'm going to keep this just really short for an intro because we have a really lengthy Surah and hopefully we're going to finish today, but it might go into Tuesday as well because it's over 180 verses. Um, but just in terms of fundraising, if you are interested, this Surah is available for sponsorship. Um, it's one of the longer surahs, so to sponsor it, it would be $3,500 um, as part of our surah sponsorship program. I think there's 33 that have been claimed, so there's a lot available still to sponsor. So if you guys are interested, you can send us an email to grace at usuli.org, and we will reserve it for you. And that's it. Okay. Ready, Sheikh? That was short. I know. I kept you short compared to last time. <laughs> As um, Marwa said, today's surah is As-Safat. And um, uh, we, we will see there are a lot of nuances. Um, a lot of nuances and layers that we uh, we should understand with the surah and subhanallah uh, surah al-safat poses a, a um, its own challenge in presentation um, although I will talk about traditional approaches and Sufi-esque approaches, as I always do, uh, but that's not the main challenge with Surah Al-Safat. Um, but in it is rather the uh, what it accomplishes as a cohesive whole, and and the way that it accomplishes it. And so I'm going to point out to certain dynamics that are going on in the surah at the very beginning. And then I will go back and tie these dynamics so that you get a sense of the role they play and the meaning that they convey. So, as always, methodologically, we have to situate the surah. Um, and there are numerous reports that say that Surah Al-Safat was revealed after Surah Al-An'am, which we have not done. 
and uh, it was revealed right before Surah Luqman. And if this is so, if it is revealed um, right after the An'am and right before Luqman, then necessarily it would be a post-Isra Surah. So it would be a Surah after the Isra or Ma'raj. And it would rather situate it as late, a late Meccan surah. Um, a surah that is revealed before uh, Saba, uh, Zumur, Ghafir, Fusilat. Um, but a surah that is revealed after. Uh, Abdukhan, Shara, Naml, Aqasas, and of course after Isra itself. Now, what's interesting though is that you do find reports that say that Surah Al Safat is mid Meccan period, and mid Meccan would, would mean that it is before the um, the escalation and the persecution of Muslims before it, the, the persecution got very bad and intolerable. Um, and Mid-Meccan would, would imply that it is before the Isra. Is there a way, a way to reconcile between these two uh, two types of reports: the one that the ones that situated in the late Meccan period, and those that situated in the middle Meccan period. There isn't really a way to reconcile them. Um, and it's it's not, as far as I know, from my own work. I was not able to give one greater leverage over the other on the basis of the isnad, on the basis of chains of transmission. But, Allahu A'lam, Allah knows best, but my strong sense is that Isafat is a post-Isra surah and that it is indeed a late Meccan period surah. Uh, in part because substantively of what it is communicating and what it's conveying. And we'll see that the Surah Al-Safat is, is um, th there is a foundational lesson, a um, Maybe not foundational in the in the in the sense of the type of ethical foundations that we find with Hawa in the Hawa meme that we've talked about, um, but foundational in a different sense. In a, a foundational, perhaps in a, um, in the sense of social morality. Um, in the sense of, um, in an organizational sense, uh, 
not in the sense of individual ethics, Okay, so I'm going to flag a few things that we'll come back to in Surah Al-Safa. Um, the one thing that we will notice in the Surah is a dynamic of what we might call Taqabul. Taqabul is juxtaposing of dualities that we will see throughout the surah. But unlike a surah like Surah Al-Rahman where the dualities are stated explicitly, in Surah Al-Safat you need to do some work to notice the dualities that the surah is inviting you to consider. Um, so for instance, we notice that Surah Al-Safad gives us an anecdotal situation in which the same precise type of questions, um, where people will be asking questions one time in, in hell, another time in heaven. So this is the duality that we see in Ayah around 29 and Ayah around 52. Uh, this dynamic of, of posing questions at the end of a journey, one time in heaven and one time in hell. Um, Similarly, the rhetorical question, the rhetorical question where you ask, is it possible that after we've died and we've become just dust, that we will come back? That rhetorical question is asked in Surah Al-Safat in verse 16 and verse 53, and, but with different results each time. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this to, to discuss it further. Uh, one time we, we talk about Mab'uthun. Another time we talk about Madinun. Um, We also have a rather interesting juxtaposing of the, the, the symbol of a tree. A tree that one time is in hell, Shajar al-Zakum, and that tree in hell is a source of great suffering juxtaposed to Shajaratul Yaqteen, which will be a source of nourishment and life 
to a prophet of God. So at the at the outset, we must be cognizant of the fact that you have Surah Al-Safat is inviting you to consider a a deep reflection. And what are these dualities about? And why do we have them? Um, that's a, a, a fair question. I mean, you don't find this type of analysis in traditional tafsir or in Sufi-esque tafsir, but nevertheless, it, it's clear in the text. We can easily find it. And it deserves reflection. Another thing that we notice about Surah Al-Safat is the expression Ibadullah al-Mukhlusin, which means Allah's truly um, loyal or Allah's truly legitimate, authentic believers, those who truly believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This ayah, Ibadullah al-Mukhlasin, is repeated five times in Surah al-Safat. Now, this expression, Ibadullah al-Mukhlasin, is repeated eight times in the Quran, in the entire Quran. But out of those eight, five occur in Surah Al-Safat. So Surah Al-Safat, right away, that's a hint that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala is is flagging to us this dynamic of Ibadullah al-Mukhlusin, that not just the believers, but those who have committed to Allah in a special and particularly sincere way. And as we will see, this is bolstered by the narratives of um, the prophets that occurs in Surah Al-Safat. Uh, since I'm, I'm flagging things at the beginning, there's there's other unique aspects about Surah Al-Safat that we will come back to. Uh, in Surah Al-Safat is the only time in the Quran where the Prophet Elias salam is mentioned. Um, Elias is in the Bible is Elijah, um, and this is again noteworthy and something that I'll come back to again. Moreover, Surah Al-Safat is the only surah where we have the expression Subhana Rabbika Rabbil Izzah Amma Yasifun. Um, that expression, which I'll, 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 discuss, I'll come back to and, and discuss, um, 
occurs only in Surah Al-Safat. It's not repeated again in the Quran elsewhere. And it, as an expression, it requires that one understands and believes in Allah, giving Allah God's full due as unlike anything. In, in other words, truly understanding God as singular and dissimilar to anything else. Which, of course, if you have that level of belief and relationship with Allah, uh, then it reminds us of Ibadullah al-Mukhlisin, those who follow Allah with absolute, sincere, and authentic, and pure belief. We'll come back to, to, to all of these things. But so, my, the thing that I, I want you to take right from at this point is that we have these particularities, unique aspects of Surah Al-Safat. And when we are reading the Quran or studying the Quran and we notice a surah that has characteristics that are dissimilar to any other surah or has ayat or expressions that don't occur anywhere else in the Quran, that is an indication to us of that must be taken into understanding the meaning of the surah and the import of the surah, the lesson of the surah. Okay. I am, because the surah is a hundred and, over a hundred and eighty verses, I'm not going to go verse by verse, or I'm going to try to avoid doing that. And I'm going to just focus on the the themes of the surah. So hopefully we can accomplish it um, in one session. Okay, so surah to safad then begins with a rather very fascinating beginning. الصفات صفا فالزاجرات زجرا فالتاليات ذكرا إن إلهكم لواحد والصفات صفا if you are just going by the literal meaning of things so it would be referring to things arranged by ranks وَالزَّاجِرَاتِ زَجْرًا Things that drive things. وَالتَّالِيَاتِ فَالتَّالِيَاتِ ذِكْرًا Things that recite 
reminders. So, right away you are asking, well, what, what are the ranks? What are, who's driving what? What's being driven and who's doing the driving? And how do we go from the ranks to reciting reminders? or reciting dhikr. Now, reciting dhikr could be reciting reminders, could be reciting Qur'an. In traditional tafsir, the majority of the traditional tafsir say that, well, this refers to angels. That Allah is swearing by the angels who are in the Malakut al-A'la, in, in Allah, in the, uh, the realm of angels, and that they stand in ranks as they await God's commands, and that those angels are engaged in, are a driving force in many affairs in our world. In traditional tafsir, as I told you before, that they often claimed that the angels are the ones that drive the clouds and cause rain to happen. That was a common old medieval belief. Um, and that ultimately the angels are the ones that then recite the Qur'an, they deliver the dhikr. Other <coughs> traditional um, interpretations, less common but, but still part of the tradition, they said, no, this refers to scholars or to people of God that stand ready in ranks and then they pursue the knowledge of uh, Islam, they, they study Sharia, they study Aqidah, and then they become the, the, they become um, um, the drivers of Al-Amr al-Maruf al-Nahan al-Munkar, they, they, they drive the, in society, they, they pursue goodness, they pursue what is good and they resist what is, is not good, and that ultimately they are the protectors and the preservers of the dhikr by reciting the dhikr. Um, others have said that this even uh, refers to, I mean, a closely related idea that it could refer to scholars or it could refer to warriors. And although that Surah Al-Safat is a Meccan Surah before there was jihad and before there was warfare, but that Allah was 
reminding Muslims or telling Muslims of the important role of those who are going to stand in ranks and fight in the way of God and how important this would be for the preservation of Islam. Even less common uh, interpretations in the traditional tafsir, some said that this refers to birds or flying animals that fly. Um, the attire and subhanallah that we last um week we covered um surat fusilat which in fact refers to birds flying and allah is the one that holding up holding them up and so on and so Normally, those who said that this refers to attire or to, to birds uh, refer to Surat Fusilat in order to support that interpretation. Now, I don't think you would be very surprised that in the Sufi Ask traditions, especially, this is understood as a reference to your internal driving forces, that your inner conscience and the dynamics of your inner conscience, whether it ultimately ignites the recitation of the dhikr within you or it fails to do so. So in the, in the nearly all the Sufi tradition, the, it, this is read as an allegorical reference to internal reminders. Now, all of these tafsir are plausible because the language is expansive enough to, to support any of that. The challenge, however, is the opening of the surah, can it be related to the rest of the surah? It's one thing to say, well, as-saffati saffa refers to um, angels or refers to birds or refers to scholars or refers to warriors or refers to uh, uh, the internal conscience but it's another to be able to, to, to understand this opening of the surah as connected cohesively to the rest of the surah so that's one thing the other is, if we look at the language itself, Your God is one. And we understand this surah situationally when it was revealed 
And in light of the challenges that confronted Muslims at the time that they were confronted with, and we place this in the context of the rest of the surah, it is, in my opinion, the surah is clearly referring to a dynamic, a dynamic process. And it's talking about as if a chronology of dynamics. You begin with a soft thought, things that are at the beginning, what is Safar Shay? is to organize something. The very first organizational steps. Zajr Shay is then to move into action. Fataliyati Zikra. You can't say is the result of the action, but you can say it would make sense if it follows the action. So was Safati Safa is as if saying what takes place at the beginning is the organizational readiness, the premises from which you start. You either start with the right soft, you organize things correctly at the beginning, And then what follows can follow. Or you fail to do so, and then you don't know if what if anything good can follow. Fazajirati Zajra is what is the the element of movement after the Safati Safra. The element of movement, of action, after the organizational stage. What actual dynamics of movement take place? Now, these dynamics of movement can, can include anything from education, to social welfare, to warfare, to anything. Because literally, Zajirati Zajra is like saying, pay attention to the dynamics within society. Faltaniyati Zikra is the ultimate objective from an Islamic perspective. No organization and no dynamics that do not end with anchoring of dhikr, in other words, 
a reaffirmation of the place of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala amounts to anything. From an Islamic perspective, even if you are wonderfully organized and have a wonderful plan of action, but it doesn't lead to tilawat al-dhikr, to the affirmation of piety, of godliness, then it's failed, then it's nothing, it's hawa. And I would argue, or I think that this understanding is in fact borne out by the rest of the surah and the way that it, it the entire surah is an invitation to reflect on the three dynamics. And especially the narratives about the prophets السلام, that occur in Surah Al-Safat. The, the planning stage, the action stage, and the results. Now, of course, if you think of Muslims at that stage and where they were situated, and you think of what the Prophet Muhammad did in preparing for the Hijrah, and that it wasn't just simply waking up one day and running off to Medina, that we know that it, Medina was preceded by a, a, a long process of planning and so well planned that by the time the, the Prophet eventually migrates to Medina, in fact, so much of Medina had been converted or had been accepted Islam, a, a sufficient mass of people as to actually constitute a, 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 um, a, a support base for the Prophet <coughs> It syncs wonderfully with the message of Surah Al-Safat itself, as we will, we will see inshallah. So, this succinct, eloquent, but deep beginning where you are left wondering what these are, but at the same time, if you were, if Arabic was your language back then, you would understand that it is inviting you to think about these three different stages. And whether if you're a warrior, you're going to think about, okay, the beginning, the organization before battle, 
what takes place in battle, and then the results after that. If you're a scholar, you're going to think about what, how you prepare for scholarship, the actual pursuit of scholarship, and or accomplishing of scholarship, and then the results. If you, you know, whatever your particular trade, you would understand what it is inviting you to, to consider. And in all cases, inna ilahakum your God is one. That is the center and the focus of everything, and in fact of everything that we are invited to reflect upon and ponder in Surah Al-Safa. رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضُ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا وَرَبُّ الْمَشَارِقِ The Lord of everything, but that expression, that fascinating expression, رَبُّ الْمَشَارِقِ Both traditional tafsir and Sufi-esque tafsir paused at this. And in the study Qur'an, it translates it as the Lord of the Easts. Why would Allah say the Lord of the East or the Easts in plural? The Lord of everything means the Lord of the East and West. And in fact, elsewhere in the Quran, like in Surah Al-Rahman, it says, Lord of the East and West. So why here would say, Rabbul Masharaq? In traditional tafsir, they tell you, well, you know, in a year there are 360 360 times when the sun rises in a year. And the sun rises from the east and goes down in the west. And Allah is telling you, this is the Lord of the rising sun. Yeah, but it's not very satisfying. The mashariq, the idea, the, the very expression of mashriq al-shayt, was idiomatically an expression that meant illumination and enlightenment. And it is not an accident that in Surah Al-Safat, Allah is pointing your attention that it, the, the God of goodness the God, it's like the God of beauty, the God of illumination and enlightenment. And this, I think, I mean, it's, it's not that the traditional tafsir are wrong, but it's just incomplete. Rabbul um, Masharaq, the God of enlightenment and illumination. Then Surah Al-Safat, subhanAllah, it moves on to something that we encountered in Surah Fussilat, which we did last week. Flagging that theme again of 
telling you to, to reflect upon the sky that surrounds you. In Surah Fusilat, it said, reflect upon the seven heavens. And as we said, we don't know what the seven heavens are other than there, there might be a reference to seven spaces, seven dimensions, seven time junctures, whatever it is. But it is to reflect on the remarkable miracle of creation and our existence in a well-organized atmosphere, whether the first atmosphere that provides us with oxygen and it sustains our life, or what we see with as our eye looks above. But as we encountered in Surat Fusilat, here when it tells you that again that if demons attempt to access knowledge of the world of Ghaib, the knowledge of the of of the world of Malakut. The, the the world beyond our temporal existence that the heavens are protected against that meaning that the heavens deny demons that access and in traditional tafsir there is an undue fixation on on things we, we, there is no way for us to understand or access. What does it mean for them to be chased away by a flame? Where does that happen? There, there's no way for us, the idea that you, you, know, you watch a shooting star and that that's chasing a demon, that's completely unfounded. And in fact, we have a hadith, from one hadith that says that this is exactly what happens, and another hadith that says, no, that's not it. When you see a shooting star, it has nothing to do with it chasing a demon. So we have hadith, both hadiths that conflict, that contradict each other on this point. But what we can say comfortably is that if you shoot shooting stars, it has nothing to do with demons. Where demons get chased and what it means that that they are cast with flames from every side, where does that happen? In what part of the heavens, what part, what dimension of existence? We have no way of knowing. For one thing, they're made of fire and they're chased by fire and what type of energy is chasing another form of energy? It's beyond our lived experience. So what is the point of that? And as in Surat Fusulat we said that the point of that is actually to say decisively that the old belief system existing before Islam that your affairs as human beings are affected by what goes on in the heavens that you can look at shooting stars and say, well, this tells me X, Y, Z about my future, it is invalid. It's severing the ties between 
the the khark um, al um the uh, magical and the paranormal in before islam the paranormal and the magical were very much part of reality the way that people thought about reality and the way that people wrote about reality mythology and reality intermixed naturally islam it wasn't the scientific revolution. It was Islam that came with the first basis for empiricism and rational thought and said the, the mythological has nothing to do with your fate as human beings. And so when we read in 6 and... Truly we adorn the lowest heavens with an ornament, the stars, and a guard against every defiant Satan. They listen not to the highest assembly, for they are repelled from every side, cast out, and there shall be punishment everlasting, save one whom snatches a fragment as a piercing flame pursues him. So ask them, are they more difficult? These verses must be understood as not an invitation to reflect upon the affairs of demons and how they are chased by flames, but as an affirmation that your fate has nothing to do with the supernatural and the superstitious. Okay. Then it comes to a rather, what should be an obvious point. Human beings often fall in the trap of thinking that it is an exceptional thing for Allah to create and resurrect or recreate them. And Surat Safat, as in many other parts of the Quran, it poses the that question that should have an obvious answer. Have you compared the complexity of your creation to the complexity of the rest of the universe? You're nothing. The rest of the universe is far more complex than you are. So do not think that it is a very big deal for Allah to have created you and to bring you back. In the scheme of things, this is a very small deal for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is Ayah 11. You notice from 11 to 21. First, on 12, let's see how to translate it. Um, 
12 Bal'ajibta wa Yaskharun, the study Quran translates it as, Indeed, but though those marvel while they scoff. There is a, a, a grammatical slash Yeah, there is a grammatical debate about verse 12. Who is marveling? If Bal'ajibta, then it would be the Prophet, in all likelihood. Bal'ajibtu, with Rafa, it would be Allah that marvels. Um, like Ibn Mas'ud said. So they're two different Qur'as. And the, the issue, I mean, it, uh, uh, the issue is that they meet this message with scoffing, but how remarkably puzzling is scoffing at what is obvious that this universe has a maker, has an owner, that it was created with purpose and created with meticulous organization. And you notice then till 21, the, 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 it goes back to the eternal debate between believers and unbelievers, when the believers say, and disbelievers say, is it possible that after we have become nothing that we would come back? And not only that, but the earlier generations before us. And Allah's response to this, as we've seen in repeatedly in the Quran, is an obvious yes, and that this is a small deal. Okay. Until we get to the point that they will die and be resurrected, and when they are resurrected, they, the reality that they've denied will come down hard on them, and they will, yeah, Wailana, where they say, you know, uh, it's like, yeah, Wailana is like saying, oh my God, we're in trouble now. And um, and the response to that, well, this is this is the day that you've lived your life denying and doubting. Then we come to twenty-two. The the importance about this. Let's see how they translate. Um, Gather those who did wrong together with their spouses and that which they used to worship. Yeah, I was worried that it's translated the spouses. Zalamu, those who were unjust, wa'azwajahum. The azwaj could mean spouses. But azwaj could also mean 
anything that is a partner to you. So if you if you put adulterers with adulterers, so in other words, people who committed the same type of sins together, that's as well. If you put people and their main partners in crime, that's as well. If you put people and their main ideological influences, that's as well. If you put people and the demons that accompanied them in their lives together, that's as well. Most certainly, in 22, it does not mean spouses. <clears throat> Why most certainly? Because what if your spouse, as we actually see in the stories of the prophets, that Surah Tassafat tells us, that sometimes the, the prophet's spouse, the pro this is the prophet and the spouse is corrupt. So what if your spouse is not like you? So why would it say, put them and their spouses? Everyone follow what I'm saying? So it most definitely doesn't mean spouses. But even the context, when say, their partners, whoever their partners are, whether their partners are demons, whether their partners are other human beings, whether their partners are those who are like them in sin, those who are like them in outlook, those who are like them in uh, inequity, their examples in life, and what they used to worship. You notice here um, the, the um, 23 this is um, an example of where the Quran is um, using um, mockery because it, it normally we say well <clears throat> guide us to the so when you say guide them to the straight path of the, of hellfire it's flipping things on its head anyway just um, guide them to the path of hellfire yeah uh, there is no sirat to hellfire. Uh, I mean, there, there are hadiths that say that you stand on a very thin line, and but there is no sirat as in meaning as in a straight path to hellfire. Uh, but the point is, is that it is, it's sort of making fun of them that. This this is inevitably where they're going to end, regardless of how much they've lived denying that fact. Okay.
So then we get to the first mention of وَأَقْبَلَ بَعْضُهُمْ عَلَى بَعْضٍ يَتَسَاءَلُونَ In 28 This first time that it's mentioned in Surah Al-Safat that in 28 that they will all once they get over the initial shock and they find one another they recognize those who are familiar to them the most natural thing is after the first shock is you come to one another and you start conversing. You start wondering about your fate, you start asking questions of one another, trying to glean what the other knows. But quickly, at this stage, because here, meeting one another and asking one another is taking place in Hellfire, in Jahim. it quickly turns into blaming one another. Finding especially those that played a role in your life on earth, the influences upon you, those that were your partners in crime, in other words, in one form or another. So, قَالُوا إِنَّكُمْ كُنْتُمْ تَأْتُونَنَا عَنِ الْيَمِينَ This is 28. See how they translate. Truly you used to come to us from the right. Very literal. عَنِ الْيَمِينَ means right. But what does it mean to say you used to come to us from the right? If you think it literally, as a lot of traditional tafsir do, it doesn't have any meaning. What, what does it mean that you came to us to the, from the right? But if you take it idiomatically, when you say someone, atani anil yameen, means that someone would approach me from the side that I found attractive or from the angle that I found attractive. So if I know that you like cars, and I come to you and I, and I start talking to you about cars, this is If I know that you like women, and I come to you and I talking to you about women, that's If I know that you like power and prestige, and I was your boss or your superior granting you power and prestige that's so idiomatically then it makes perfect sense 
kuntum ta'tunana anil yameen that you came to us from the angle that was soft that we we were soft towards we we found attractive and and because you came to us from the side that was tempting to us we weakened so in other words there is your group is blaming you're blaming the other for having you've tempted me and you've made things sound attractive to me whoever is being blamed in response is You were not actually, you did not want to be good. You, it's, it's not us who misguided you or misled you. It was you who lacked in faith, lacked in iman. وَمَا كَانَ لَنَا عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْ سُلْطَانٍ بَلْ كُنْتُمْ قَوْمًا طَاغِينَ And this is even stronger in 30. That in reality, you were not just weak in faith, but you were unjust. Otari is a is a person who's a beyond injustice, sort of a a a, a tyrant or a um, it's a step in injustice that is beyond injustice, like particularly bad. You were yourselves corrupt people so let's see 30 is translated as we have no authority over you rather you were a rebellious people no it's not rebellious it was that you were corrupt people you were bad people um you were foul people so this and again, in, in, in being exposed to your tradition, um, both traditional tafsir and Sufi-esque tafsirs will often note, and I think quite intentionally, that this particularly applies to situations where people were in the service of unjust superiors that situations of real duress or coercion coercion that is considered coercive under islamic law under sharia so under sharia for instance you can't say i was coerced to kill another person because it's a life against a life, then you, you don't have a right to prefer your life over the life of another. Leave alone, prefer your life over the lives of many. Uh, in Sharia, the coercion cannot be a loss of material comfort. I mean, there are rules for, for, for what counts as coercion. And in the vast majority of situations when human beings, even when they claim to be coerced, they're actually not coerced, but they're actually corrupt. 
because they want to partake or want to have a share in the goodness or whatever uh, the corrupt superior has. So they want position, they want power, they want prestige, and so on. And to confront that reality, so what is fascinating, though, is think about Surat al-Safat saying this at this point. If you are building a tyrannical society, the worst, what you want to make sure that people do not think of is the idea that a superior command is no excuse in the hereafter. Right? If you are building the foundations of a just society, you will invite people to think about whether superior commands are just. And you will tell people, be careful, because if the superior command is not just, that's not going to be an excuse. You're still going to be responsible. We often read this and just pass. We just go through it very quickly. We don't pause to, to ponder the fact that this is being told to Muslims who are in that stage of safati safa, that, that stage of preparation, being prepared. And they're being taught what? Your moral responsibility is individual and personal and saying that a superior ordered me to do what is un, what is unjust is not going to avail you this is not the way you build the type of societies that were being built at that in that day and age As you know, I'm a student of comparative law, and I don't know of a single legal system at the time that had a doctrine of refusal to implement the orders of a superior because they're immoral. That doctrine does develop in law centuries later. I mean, it... it takes the birth of natural law and natural law philosophy and then eventually we have it in the 20th century suggested philosophically and then from philosophy it moves into law but the existence of that dynamic in the Meccan period if you understand comparative law if you studied Jewish law and Roman law and Sassanid law, it blows your mind. Now, notice that this is not in isolation, because also, not only does the Quran repeat this many, many times, 
both in the Mecca period and in the Medina period, but we also have numerous narratives, like the famous narrative that were reported from uh, about Ali ibn Abi Talib in, in one of the battles where he tells his soldiers, jump into, he lights up a fire and says, jump into the fire. And when they refuse to carry out his orders, he says, that's precisely the point, because if you would have jumped into the fire, your fate would have been hellfire. In other words, you cannot obey my orders, even if they're my orders, because they're unlawful. That type of paradigm is centuries ahead of its time. Okay. إِنَّ كَذَلِكَ نَفْعَلْ بِالْمُجْرِمِينَ إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا إِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ يَسْتَكْبِرُونَ يَقُولُوا إِنَّا لَتَارِكُوا آلِهَتَنَا لِشَعْرٍ مَجْنُونَ بَلْ جَاءَ بِالْحَقِّ وَصَدَّقَ الْمُرْسَلِينَ Okay, so... This from... Um, from 35, 40, no, sorry, 34 to 39 takes us back specifically to the dynamics with the Prophet where the excuse for or a reference to the typical argument that we cannot leave what our fathers, what we learned by habit, by custom, by tradition, um, because of a message, and especially then the 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 fact that they would accused the Prophet of being a poet and being insane. This is in 36. Um, we've encountered this several times in, in several surahs, and so we're familiar with it. Okay, now notice in 40, we get the first reference to إِلَّا عِبَادَ اللَّهِ الْمُخْلُسِينَ The study Quran translated as not so, not so for God's sincere servants. It's technically accurate, but it's highly unsatisfying. Not so for God's sincere servants. Yes, but It's not just God's sincere servants. It is the most true of God's followers the most 
wholeheartedly sincere and authentic of God's followers. Because it is not Ibadullah al-Mukhlisin bal-Kasr, but Ibadullah al-Mukhlasin bil-Fatih. And the difference is if you say Mukhlisin, then it is people who are just sincere. But al-Mukhlasin, it is beyond sincerity. It is those who are truly committed. And as we said that this expression, Ibadallah al-Mukhlasin, is repeated five times in Surah al-Safat, and inshallah we'll, we'll see its significance as we go along. Um, before actually uh, uh, going forward, it's a good thing we, we paused because I, I did forget a few things. Um, so, um, in a lot of the traditional tafsir, uh, there are the traditional tafsir often cite two particular hadiths that you'll often find that they they cite in the discussion at the beginning of Surah Al-Safat. Uh, and because of how frequently this happens, I think we, it's important to mention these two hadiths. Um, The first is the hadith, which is a rather very famous hadith, لَتَذُولَ قَدَمَ عَبْدٍ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ حَتَّى يُسْأَلَ عَنْ أَرْبَى That um, the, the hadith effectively says that in the hereafter, every person will be asked about four things. An umri fima afna, how they've spent their life. An ilmihi madha amila bih, what they did with their knowledge. Because knowledge is a gift, a blessing from Allah. And what you do with it is something that you're accountable to Allah directly about. وعن ماله من أين اكتسبه فيما أنفقه Your money where you earned it and how you spent it وعن جسمه فيما أبلاه And your body and how you used it In some versions of the same hadith it says وعن شبابه فيما أبلاه What you did instead of your body it says what you did with your youth with your young age um, it's interesting that that hadith is often cited in a lot of traditional tafsir at the beginning section of Surah Safat. And now I've tried to find out if the Prophet 
if this hadith was mentioned by the Prophet in the context of Surah Al-Safat or as a direct commentary of Surah Al-Safat, and I couldn't find an answer to that. So I, I don't know how that, you know, why this hadith in particular. But obviously, you know, Surah Al-Safat deals with accountability in the hereafter and the... the uh, the very very first mention of hellfire and people blaming one another in hellfire and so it makes sense from from that perspective the other hadith which has a more direct link with surah al-safat says ma min da'in da'a ila shay illa kana mawquufan ma'hu yawm al-qiyamah laziman bih لا يفارقه وإن دعا رجل إلى رجل ثم قرأ وقفوهم إنهم مسؤولون. The the second hadith says that every person will be held accountable directly for what they advocated what they promoted in life and everything that you advocated or promoted or pushed for will end up being associated with you partnered with you in the hereafter so that you, to the extent that you're not going to be able to 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 rid yourself of it it's it, it, it will be a complete accounting of what your life uh, actively was about so fazajirati zajra this goes back to fazajirati zajra that what what you've actually called for in existence what you stood for in existence. Um, and especially people that you've had a direct influence on. <clears throat> for better or for worse, that whoever you've had a direct link and full influence upon. Uh, now, of course, th this becomes particularly alarming with people that you've... that were associates in wrongdoing, associates in sin. The other, a uh, couple of other things, um, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at round verse 8, when uh, Allah is talking about um, the demons approaching, trying to spy on the heavens and being chased away with flames and so on, 
what you find in a lot of Sufi-esque tafsir that I um, something that uh, a notation that I like is a reference to the fact that well I guess I alluded to it I mean I, I guess I mentioned it that it just that our experience is limited to the physical laws that we've encountered on this earth that so many of the uh, of the more richer tefasir point out to the fact that our imagination doesn't extend to the wealth and variety of what Allah has created beyond earth. So that to try to interpret these verses in terms of, you know, what precisely chases demons away is a silly endeavor, but rather it's a simply an illusion to what we cannot understand. I guess I, I, I mentioned that in a sense. Okay. Um, around verses 27 and 28, um, this is when, in reference to the um, people going in the final day and blaming one another, and saying that you used to approach us, approach us from Yamin, and as we said, that Yamin is whatever you find attractive, and so on. One thing that I found in Tafsir, like Al Wahidi's Tafsir. Um, Tafsir al-Wahidi and some other Tafsir, same idea, is that the mention of Ta'tunana an al-Yameen doesn't just mean that you used to approach us from what we deem to be attractive or what we were found to be tempting, but that you used to approach us claiming that you knew what is right. So you tricked us about al-haq, about righteousness. And al-Wahidi says that this is in particular, we find this in particular with superior orders. That those who are in command or those who are in superior positions will often claim to their underlings that what they're teaching them or what they're telling them to do is the straight path and is the path of religion. And that so often, and the followers believe in this. But if Allah knows your true intentions and Allah knows your true reality and if you believed and your belief was negligent or um, reckless um, or motivated by improper motives 
or if you should have known better, you're held responsible nevertheless. Final thing, around the same thing, um, around the same uh, discourse, is a, a type of moral commentary that uh, you found you find both in some traditional tafsir and some Sufi-esque tafsir that I thought is worth flagging and worth reflecting upon. And I'm going to read the Arabic. Um, unfortunately, as I copied this down 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I, I didn't write where I was copying it down from. And I couldn't find it last night, so I'm just going to read it. And maybe I will be able to find where it comes from later. So, it says, يُشِيرَ إِلَىٰ أَنَّ دَأْبَ أَهْلِ الدُّنْيَا أَنَّهُمْ يَلْقُونَ ذَنْبَ أَنَّهُمْ يَلْقُونَ ذَنْبَ بَعْضُهُمْ عَلَىٰ بَعْضٍ وَيَرْضَوْنَ لِإِخْوَانِهِمْ مَا لَا يَرْضَوْنَ لِأَنفُسِهِمْ وَذَلِكَ أَنَّهُمْ يَدْفَعُونَ عَنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ أَمَّا إنهم يضعون ذنب الإخوان على أنفسهم ويبرئون أو أراض الإخوان عن تهمة الذنوب ويتهمون أنفسهم ويتهمون أنفسهم ثم ذكر حديث عيسى and I'll explain this okay so he says huh تفسير النجمي it's in تفسير النجمي that was fast how did you find it Google oh Google <laughs> Modern technology sucks. I don't know how to use Google, so of course. I wasted like a good hour looking for it last night. I didn't think of Tafsir Najmi. It didn't occur to me. Okay. Hate the modern world. Okay, so that he's saying that the, the, the people who are Al-Dunya, and in, in this context, Al-Dunya means those who uh, are attached to the ethics of this world. When you, when you unpack it, you often find that what they mean is what we would call, in our age, material ethics. Ethics of materialism. And that their their nature when they get into trouble is to blame one another and their nature is that they don't care about or that they prefer themselves over their muslim brothers and sisters and they would accept for their muslims brothers and sisters what they would not accept for themselves But Ahluddin, people of religious ethics, their orientation is to make excuses for one another and to, in fact, defend one another. And they would rather take the blame 
then blame another. And they want others to be treated as they would be treated or what they would want for themselves. And then it typically what's mentioned here is a precedent that is comes from the Bible about uh, the Prophet Jesus that he saw someone steal something and then he goes up to him and says uh, you stole X Y and Z and the man says I swear by Allah God who has no partners that I didn't steal anything and then Jesus says in response because you swore I'll believe you and disbelieve my eyes and they the commentary on this is that Of course, they, they, especially when it, when when that example is used in law books, they go into a discussion about whether this property belonged to anyone or not, because you can't do that if the property belonged to something to someone other than yourself. So they say it must be that Jesus, the man was stealing something that belonged to Jesus. Um, others say no, he must have been stealing fruit in a public road or or something like that anyway but in the more ethical discussions the the, the ones that don't care about law that much they're, they they're not citing the example as a legal precedent they're citing example as demonstrative for an ethical attitude and the ethical attitude is that you're not keen to blame your Muslim brother or sister. And the contrast is rather interesting. Ahlul dunya, those who are anchored in materialism and material ethics, they could be people who pray and fast and do a lot of ibadah, but if their psychology has not changed, they are constantly in the paradigm of finding fault, and especially fault with others. They find fault with everyone first before they think of finding fault within. While Ahl dunya those who have made the, the moral shift, the ethical shift, their attitude is, is exactly the opposite. they would rather find fault within than find fault with the other. And now the reason I thought it's, it might have not been interesting at the time it was written, I don't know, but it's actually interesting in our age, especially the part that you find absent with Muslims um, wanting for others what you want for yourself because we know that the prophet so this is in a paraphrasing of the hadith of the prophet that a true mu'min a true muslim would want for others what they want for them what they want for themselves but 
And that, in theories of justice, by the way, becomes an entire philosophy of justice. There are so many theories of justice that's, that is premised on, well, the essence of justice is that you would assume a state of ignorance and try to distribute things where you would enjoy where you, the rights you recognize with others are the rights you, you would want to enjoy yourself. And that becomes the essence for the basic theory of justice that then goes on philosophically to work out all the permutations and nuances. But so many theories of justice go back to that core. Treat others and you would want to be treated. And even in Christian ethics, it's called the golden rule. But in my, my impression is that in modern Islamic discourses, I rarely find that emphasized as a core value in Islam. That to be a true Muslim, you cannot truly submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unless you get to that point where you can think empathetically and recognize rights in others and in favor of others as you would want for yourself. And your standard for fair treatment and fair justice is the type of treatment that you would, because it is, it's much easier said than done. It's as, as a moral and a philosophical perspective. It requires an enormous amount of work to be within this paradigm from Ahl dunya to Ahl al-Din. And notice, is he doesn't say, doesn't say Ahl al-Akhirah. Does say the people of the hereafter. It talks about Ahl al-Din people of religiosity. Um, the type of value that we so sorely miss in our, our modern Muslim world. Okay, I think that's all I forgot. So let's now move on. Where did we stop? 40. 40. Oh, 40. <clears throat> so then in Surah Al-Safat, it moves on, from, it mentions about Allah Al-Mukhlasin. And we've talked about Al-Mukhlasin. And their reward. Um, the, the only uh, the, a couple of things about the, the ayat on reward. We've already encountered in previous tafsir the the way that traditional tafsir understands the word understand the rewards of heaven in a very literal sense that when it says that you're going to sit on surah mutaqabilin that you are actually going to be sitting on couches and 
mutaqabilin facing one another. Uh, when it says that you'll be going to be drinking from ku'us uh, or ka'sim min ma'in, that you are actually going to be drinking from cups. And we said that in Sufi Akhs Tafasir, all these rewards are understood allegorically. That, and we've talked about this in previous Tafasir, that a ka'sman ma'in is an allegory to, to forms of enlightenment and perception rather than an actual drinking or an actual couch, etc., etc. Um, the, the only thing that, uh, the thing that are unique to Surah Al-Safat that is worth commenting on is when, when it refers to يُطَافُ عَلَيْهِمْ بِكَأْسٍ مِنْ مَعِينٍ بَيْضَاءَ لَزَّةٍ لِلشَّارِبِينَ لَا فِيهَا غَوْلٌ وَلَا هُمْ عَنْهَا يُنْزَفُونَ Most traditional tafsir say that here the cup refers to wine. But this wine, لَا فِيهَا غَوْلٌ وَلَا هُمْ يُنْزَفُونَ meaning means that it will not have any of the negative physical side effects of alcohol. So there won't be throwing up, there won't be going to the bathroom urinating, um, there, there won't be, you won't get headaches. Wala uh, yunzafun means that, and you're not going to get drunk. So th- this is in traditional tafsir. In Sufi as tafsir, of course, none of that is relevant. وعندهم قاصرات الطرفين كأنهم بيض مكنون. This is forty-eight and forty-nine. Traditional tafsir interpret this as uh, either your actual spouses in life. But your actual spouses, as as uh, from hadith, we know that uh, all women, when they go to heaven, they 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 go to their pristine age and pristine look, etc. Uh, and qasiratul tarf is that you are they they don't see anyone beyond other than their spouse. So spouses find no one attractive other than their own spouse. That's actually not the majority of the traditional tafsir. The traditional tafsir say that there will be virgin women that will see no one other than the man that they're uh, designated for. Sufi as tafsir don't read Qasirat al-Tarfi'in as referring to women at all, um, as we've encountered before in our earlier tafsir. That these are a reference to the your 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 share of enlightenment that is specifically designated to you. Qasratu tarfain means that they are not accessible to anyone but you, depending on your own psychology and your own achievements on life on earth. So um the other thing that I'll flag is on 49 in the study Quran it translates it as uh, as if they were hidden eggs 
of course, tra li literal translation, you don't get it, you don't understand how is that important, hidden eggs. It refers, again, it's an idiomatic expression um, for in, in old Arabic, in Arabic at the time the Quran was revealed, that um, when used by Arabs, it referred specifically to the fact that ostriches, ostrich birds, uh, protected their eggs by burying them in the sand. And so it's saying that these are, whether spouses or women or um, secrets of illumination and knowledge, are untouched and uncorrupted by others, using the idiomatic expression one of the most interesting things I've read, and I think it was in Tafsir al-Razi, and, and again, I, I had noted it down but didn't note where it's from, but I'm pretty sure it was al-Razi, uh, that the Qur'an used idioms that made sense to the Arabs, especially when it came to describing hell and fire. It used idiomatic expressions that made sense to Arabs at the time. And then it poses the hypothetical question, if the Quran was revealed at a different time, would it have used different idiomatic expressions? And Arazi says yes. And Zamakhshari says yes as well. That it a reader of the Quran, an intelligent reader of the Quran, would try to would understand the objective that is the in, the intent of that or the the point of the reference, and learn from that rather than get struck at stuck at what this word literally means or not. Okay, then we get the second reference to فَأَقْبَلَ بَعْضُهُمْ عَلَىٰ بَعْضٍ يَتَسَأَلُونَ This is 50. So now it again refers us to this process of people conversing, discoursing, and posing questions. But this time... The first time was in hellfire. The second time, it's in heaven. And what is the question that's, that is being asked? Someone says, Someone is saying, I used to have an associate, a partner. And that associate and partner used to question whether, in fact, we will be resurrected, that after we are dust and bones, whether we will be resurrected. 
And then that person will say, do any, do any of you, presumably, he's asking angels, say, asking the angels, do you know what happened to that associate or partner? And those that the person, the response will be, well, that associate or partner is in hellfire now. This gave theologians a pause because you are saying, I used to have an associate or partner, but this associate or partner is someone who, from what Safat says, seems to be a doubter, not a believer. So how is he an associate or partner to someone who's made it to heaven? Why are you in heaven thinking that this person might have ended in, you're wondering why aren't they in heaven like you? What type of people is it talking about? Some said, well, it's referring to these people who were not clear shoes to heaven. In other words, people who lived struggling with the wrong type of influences but managed to resist them sufficiently. But for many, this was not a satisfactory answer because so what would be the point of telling us about asking these questions and wondering where your partners and associates were only to find out that they're in hellfire and not only that but notice in 57 the the person who's asking this question will say Laula ni'matu rabbi lakuntu minal muhdarin you know not only did you have you not only did you disbelieve but you've influenced me and if it hadn't been for God's mercy I would have ended up in hellfire like you so what type of people then is Ayat al-Safat talking about? Well, in part, if you imagine Ayat al-Safat is revealed to Muslims at a time when they are intermingled with disbelievers. And not all of the people that receive Ayat al-Safat will actually succeed in doing the Hijrah. There will be people who stay back, who will weaken, who will not be strong enough to actually do the hijrah. And this is 
at a time where Muslims don't have their own separate polity. They're inter intermingled in Meccan society, and depending on their status, they're either completely persecuted, or some of them are still living with their families, and with their spouses, and with their siblings, and so on. So, if you look at it from a historical point of view, it's talking to people that deal with blurry lines. But if you look at it from a philosophical point of view, there are many situations in which you exist in in midst, in midst of a dynamic that is often unjust or unethical. And you are challenged to make the ethical call that is often against the grain. It is against the, in, the prevailing influences in society or the prevailing influences in your family or the prevailing influences in your social circle. But for that ethical call, you would have been doomed. And as we will see, this is entirely consistent with the message of Surat al-Safat. You are there are situations where it is clear that people and their bad influences are in hellfire. But there are many situations where it is not a question of succumbing to temptation. It is a question of taking a principled stand when everything around you is telling you that your principles are wrong. If you would have made the wrong call, you would have ended up in trouble. And this is why they tell them, If it hadn't been for God's grace, and we, you know, we all, God always helps us if we help ourselves. I would have ended up where you are. It is not a matter of you know, the issue of chance, but it is alerting the reader or the receiver of the Quran. To, from another angle, to the individual nature of accountability, and that just because you associate closely with people, your family, your tribe, your society, your social, whatever circles you have, 
it doesn't put you if it doesn't it, it doesn't make you take you off the hook when it comes to making the wrong ethical call and the wrong moral call. وَلِمِثْلِ هَذَا فَلْيَعْمَلِ الْعَامِلُونَ This is 61. It says, So in the study of Quran, say, He will say, By God, you did well nigh destroy me. You, you, you nearly did me in, right? And if it not for the blessing of my Lord, I would have been among the arraigned, or among the, those who punished. And... For like of this, then let the laborers labor. It's, an, again, an idiomatic expression like saying, yes, this is hard work, but, but this is precisely the type of hard work that is rewarded. implies not an easy thing, but a tough call. Okay. There is a um, there is a hadith reported attributed to the Prophet or Irwaya um, okay there are there, two, two of them but one that I, I have strong doubts about its authenticity the other I'm more comfortable with the first is for, uh, from reported by Al-Bara bin Azib and in some versions Al-Bara bin Azib who says that Kuntu Amshima Rasulillah Yadi fi Yadu that I, I was walking with the Prophet his my hand in his hand. Um and then Fara Janasa the Prophet saw a, a funeral. So he Hurried up He followed the, the funeral until he came to the gravesite. Um, and once he arrived at the gravesite, he sat on his knees and wept. And when I walked up to the Prophet ﷺ, he looked at me and said, فَلِمِثْلِ هَذَا فَلْيَعْمَلِ الْعَامِلُونَ The nature of the narrative implies that this is someone that was close to the Prophet ﷺ, although we don't know who, who it was. And that this is someone who was pious. The, I, I, I have doubts about the authenticity of this tradition, but it's one of the narratives um, that is often cited 
in the context of Surah Al-Safat. Um, and it's not just wept, but wept very strongly. So, I don't know. The other is reported from Ennis, um, and they went to visit a, a, a man who is on his deathbed. And the man in his deathbed was said something to the effect that um, the only concern, the only worry he has is that Allah would forgive him for his sins. And the Prophet then said, فَلِمِثْلِ هَذَا فَلِعَمِلِ الْعَامِلُونَ That same expression from the ayah. Um, how did the translation... Yeah, as I said, for like of this, then the let the laborers labor. I I don't like the the translation doesn't capture the strength of the of the phrase or the the power of the phrase. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to. Okay, let's move on. So then Surah Al-Safat moves on to tell us about something we encountered before. A tree known as Shajarat Al-Zakum. There are long debates as to whether Arabs knew of a tree called Sajrat al-Zakum. It's the, the evidence is all conflicting and nothing reliable. But the critical thing about Sajrat al-Zakum is that all that grows out of this tree is horrible, it is a terrifying tree, and it is a source of punishment for wrongdoers. And as we said before, that the Meccans mocked the idea that there is a tree in hellfire because they thought, how can a tree grow in hellfire? And in Surah Al-Safat, we get a bit more elaboration about this tree, but it is something that is simply described as تَخْرُجُ فِي أَصْلِ الْجَحِيمِ that it, it is anchored in 
in hellfire talquha ka'annahu ru'usu ash-shayatin it looks like the heads of demons and that in surah as-saffat that discourse that insists that those that are being punished are going to eat from it and fill their stomachs and that it is going to taste horrible and be a completely horrible experience and in fact that it is made it's described as inna ja'alnaha fitnatan lilzalimin a lot of commentators say that this is an illusion to the fact that Meccans mock the idea of a tree in hellfire so it's a fitna in the sense that those who refuse to believe in it it will their disbelief will haunt them in the hereafter traditional tafsir not surprisingly read shajarat al-zaqum or understand shajarat al-zaqum as quite literally an actual tree however trees are in hellfire that exists in in jahim and that is terrifying and that people are going to eat from and is going to fill their stomachs and it's going to taste horrible and it's going to be horrible experience and traditional tafsir they, they they simply you know will collect all the hadith that might relate to shajarat al-zaqqum and say you know and maybe the 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 arabs it's similar to the this or that tree that the arabs knew that um, smelled foul or tasted foul or that that's an extent of what you get in sufi asked the fasirs shajarat al-zakum is understood entirely allegorically as a physical manifestations for the truth of what you plant and grow in your lifetime so in sufi astafasir shajarat al-zaqqum is individual and personal and that if you have purified the self and cleansed the self from demons demons within you are not going to be confronted with shajarat al-zaqqum in the hereafter because your your the embodiment of your deeds when visual visualized will appear as beauty but if your deeds were ugly the embodiment of your deeds 
visualized will terrify you and terrify you in, in an individual and personal way. So some of the, the, the material that I've read years ago was that the demons that you see in Shajarat al-Zakum, the, the, the tree of your deeds, are individual and specific to your sins. And you will see the truth of the ugliness of your misdeeds in the true in, in, in the true sense. So for instance, and and the part that I that I remember that I, I was um, referring to, let's say that for some people there what terrifies them what would resemble the true ugliness of their deeds is to see the fruit of that tree as snakes. While other people, snakes are nothing. So the, 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 the passage was saying that whether you see snakes or you see other things, insects, whatever it is, it is as individual and specific and that in fact in and I, I couldn't remember where I read this to be I mean I couldn't find it yesterday that um, if a person is on the path of irtiqa the person is on the path of going through the Sufi uh, training, that at some point in their process of an irtiqa, the Allah will allow them to see the tree of their deeds before they're confronted with it in the hereafter. And then he had all these testimonials about students who have seen the tree of their deeds. Um, so that just stayed with me, and I've like t took notes, but and I and I have a I have just from the type of notes I was taking because I wrote on the margins that I was reading a manuscript because I wouldn't have written unless I was reading a manuscript. Uh, means not clear, not clear, or I I couldn't read it. So I was having a difficulty figuring out what the words were. Um, anyway. But that... Uh, now, keep in mind this, this theme of Shazrat al-Zakum because we will be juxtaposed... This will be juxtaposed with another tree in Surah al-Safat. And especially in in um, in Sufi-esque literature there there is the symbolism of whether you have Ishajarat al-Yaqteen or Ishajarat al-Zakum is used very richly in Sufi literature 
Do, do you have a shajar tiqtin? A shajar tiqtin is a tree that that is it grows all seasons and bears fruit without limit. Grow the fruit grow all the time, and it is a very unusual tree because it repels flies. So if you want to protect yourself from flies, you sit under a shajar tiqtin. But yet it smells wonderful. So something that smells wonderful and flies won't even come close to it and ha bears fruit all year long, and that's juxtaposed to shajar tiqtin. And so constantly the, the Sufi symbolism will ask you what grows within. Is it a shajar tiqtin or a shajar tiqtin? visualize your actions and figure it out before you're confronted with it in the year after type thing. Moving on, seventy-four. We have a repetition of "Illa ibadullah illa ibadullah mukhlusin or mukhlusin." A reminder again, underscoring that theme, which will come to at the end. As I said, it's repeated five times in Surah Al-Safat. Before moving from the subject of consequences to the hereafter to talking about the prophets of God, and the prophets that Surah Al-Safat addresses Znuh, Ibrahim, and when it comes to Ibrahim, Surah Al-Safat is the only place in the Quran where the story of the sacrifice is mentioned. Ibrahim sacrificing his son is mentioned. Not even in Surah Ibrahim is the story of the sacrifice mentioned. And Moses, Musa, and of course his brother Harun, and Elias, as we said, the, the only place in the Quran that Elias is mentioned is in Surah Al-Safat and Lut and then Yunus. And when we 
when we find the surah, the, the story of the sacrifice, especially the only time it's mentioned in the Quran is the story of the Sufat, of course, then it makes sense to ask why. We'll get to it, inshallah. Okay. So, we start with Nuh. And وَنَجَّيْنَهُ وَأَهْلَهُ مِنَ الْكَرْبِ الْعَظِيمِ this is 76. We saved him and his people from the great distress going to the study Quran. Notice that Ahlahu could mean his people or his family or his clan it, it, or his followers. وَجْعَلْنَا ذُرِّيَّتَهُمُ الْبَاقِينَ This is 77, and we made his progeny endure. إِنَّ كَذَلِكَ نَجْزِي الْمُحْسِنِينَ And it quick reference to the drowning of the opposites. There is a discussion in in Tafsir um, as to the flood of Noah. Did it cover the entire world or did it cover a region of the world? Region specifically in the Near East, wherever wherever it is. And the majority of the traditional tafsirs say the entire world. The minority view is region of the world, that it's the Near East. I most definitely think it was a region of the world. I don't think that it was in the entire world, it's just not scientific. Um, and even when, when even the traditional tafsir that tell you it was the entire world, when they describe the entire world, they describe the entire world as basically the, the people that inhabited what we call today the Near East. Uh, they, they were not aware of people in the world in South America or people in the world in what is today England. That was not within the realm of knowledge. And I wonder if, if they knew about these parts of the world, whether they would have still said the entire world. Um, but it, because it, uh, that discussion often occurs in Surah Al-Safat, I thought I, I mentioned it. And it, it's because of the language of Thumma Agraqna Al-Akhareen and so on. And then it mo quickly moves on to Ibrahim, and with Ibrahim, we, we pause for a little bit more detail because of the details that the surah itself gives us. That first, that thing we encountered about Ibrahim before, an innate, intuitive heart. The innate and intuitive heart rejects what 
his father and his people are doing. And as we said, that he came from a prestigious family, and uh, his father Azar had had you know, had planned for Ibrahim to inherit a lot of the uh, privileges that and and prestige Azar enjoyed. Then Surah al Safa tells us the, that he, he, he confronts his, he, he questions his people, what is it that you worship? Then, this is 88. A study Quran says, then he cast a glance at the stars. <coughs> literally means he he looked at the stars but it doesn't tell you what that means I mean it, it doesn't make sense by itself but um, idiomatically again it meant idiomatically means, when you reflect upon your affairs in a deep way that's so in in old arabic they say so it's not that you are actually staring at the stars but that you deeply reflected about what you're going to do. Some of the traditional tafasir say, well, he looked at the stars because um, his people were in the habit of uh, reading the stars for um, as as fortune telling, and that in order to in order to um, fool his people, in order to trick his people, he looked up at the stars and told them, "I can tell the stars are telling me that I am going to be ill," and. When he told them that, they left him behind so he can be alone with their idols because he wanted to destroy their idols. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So he says, oh, I see the stars and they tell me I'm going to be sick. And they say, oh, you're going to be sick? Okay, you can stay behind. We're going to our festival because they had a religious festival. And... Then they leave him behind as they go to the religious festival and he goes to the idols and he says before they went to the festival they left you all this food why don't you eat the food that they left you of course he's mocking the idols and of course the idols don't respond and then he destroys the idols and he leaves the biggest idol or the, the most important idol 
uh, standing. And when they come back and they say, who did this to our idols? He says, ask the one remaining. Um, so in other words, it's all a trick. It's all sort of like a... But the other perspective, the idiomatic perspective, is that he thought about his affairs and he decided that uh, and and the more he thought about it, where he says, فَقَالَ إِنِّي سَقِيمٌ This is 89, which the uh, study Qur'an translates is, and said, truly, I am sick. It's not that he told his people, I'm going, the stars tell me I'm getting sick, but that the more he pondered his affairs, the more he became convinced that this is, he, he can't go on coexisting with these people. That the stuff they're doing is wrong, they engaged in human sacrifices, among many other things. There were numerous injustices, and he knew that once he destroys his idols, it will be the end of the honeymoon period. It's going to lead to a confrontation. And that either it's going to lead to his expulsion or his death. But he decided, so be it. I can't stand for this anymore. I'm going to try to teach him a lesson. <clears throat> Hopefully, they will see how obvious this is that when I tell them, the biggest idol destroyed the the minor idols and they themselves know that that's impossible maybe they see the illogic in this and it will be the breakthrough that is needed so imni saqim means in in this perspective i'm i i i'm tired of this i i can't bear this anymore Okay. Um, so he destroys the idol and it doesn't achieve the breakthrough that he was hoping for. It doesn't make them come to their conscience or come to their senses. Instead, they decide that they're going to put him to death. And his father, Azar, Notice, his father, Azar, signs off on the death warrant. So, the father here, for entirely the wrong reasons, his prestige, his place, his whatever, says, okay, yeah, my, my son has gone too far, burned him to death. In some of the traditions, although again, nothing reliable, um, because it was from the Qusas, that the mother weeps and weeps once her father, Azar tells her that Ibrahim is going to be put to death. She cries and begs him to, to stop uh, the execution, and he says, sorry, I can't do it. Uh, 
all the noblemen, all the nobility are demanding the execution of Ibrahim, and I'm, I'm not going to stop it. Okay. And then the famous incident that the fire doesn't burn Ibrahim. And, and this obviously is a miracle. Um, interestingly, despite the miracle, his people do not believe. And they see this as sorcery, as magic, as Ibrahim must have been uh, in, in league with something supernatural. And then, Ibrahim leaves his home and in fact will never return to his home again and he leaves and where to you get so many different reports whether he travels to to sham to uh, uh what back actually i mean eventually but anyway a part of sham syria or whether he travels to what is today iraq or whether he travels to uh, arabia you get a lot of different reports now, why is this important? It's important because of the story of the sacrifice. It is well agreed upon that Ibrahim's first child is Ismail. That's the oldest child. Ishaq, Isaac, is the second child and the younger child. However, in the Quran, the child who, uh, when the angels come to Ibrahim and give him the story, give him the news of the miracle, that although he is old and his wife is old, and they will still be able to bear a child, the Quran says that this is Ishaq, this is Isaac. Ismail was already born, and Ismail, some reports say 10, some say 15, some say 20 years older than Ishaq. We know that Ismail is in Mecca. He's going to grow up in Mecca with his mother, Hajar, while Ishaq is in Sham and he grows up not in Arabia at all with his mother Sarah. Okay, why is all of this important? Because which child is it that Ibrahim was sacrificing? The story of the sacrifice. And actually Islamic sources, also modern Islam, most modern Muslims are universally raised with the belief that it's Ismail. In the classical sources, it's very divided. Um, a lot of the classical sources say it's Ishaq. A lot of the classical sources say it's Ismail. And the, the truth of the matter is, there is no way to know for sure. There is just, 
it's all um, whether it's a smite or a schalk. The some a lot of a lot of the the classical sources that tie the that say is it smail they connect it with things that we celebrate in Hajj, Malka Farafa, Rajma. The the, uh, the the three spots of Rajm, the Shaitan, um, but those who disagree have their own their own evidence their own evidence, and I'm, I I don't want to spend time on it because there's no way to resolve it after all these centuries of disagreements about it. Now, but. It is significant that the only time that it's mentioned in the Quran is in Surah Al-Safat, and it is the the narrative in the Quran is different in some very important respects from the narrative in the Bible. I told you several times before that. Um, the differences in in the between the Quran and the Bible in the details uh, are far more important than the similarities. And in the Bible, I mean, there, there are many differences, but the, the the biggest difference is that in the Bible, Ibrahim sees. A, has a dream, becomes convinced that this is what God is commanding, and he binds his child, and he proceeds to sacrifice his child until the last minute he gets the sacrificial lamb. In the Quran, Ibrahim informs his son that this is what he has been commanded. And it is his son who tells him to proceed with the sacrifice. So his son is not forced into it. And it is a decision on part of both Ibrahim and his son. In the Islamic tradition, there, there are other differences that in the Islamic tradition, the son, whether it's Ismail or Ishaq, tells Ibrahim, um, so that you don't feel sorry for me, and change your mind in the last minute, turn me away so that you can't see my face. And, and so that I don't involuntarily resist, tie my hands, and Ibrahim doesn't want to tie his hands. There, the other major difference is that in the Islamic tradition, 
whatever prophets see in dreams are not dreams. There is several traditions that say that the dreams of prophets are wahy, are an is an inspiration or a command. So when Ibrahim tells his son, I saw a dream, in the Islamic tradition he also sees it three times because Ibrahim sees it first time, doesn't tell his son about it because he doesn't doesn't want it, hopes his name. And then sees it again, and then sees it a third time, and then he tells his son about it. When he tells his son, his son understands this as a wahi, as a divine revelation, not as a dream. So it's not a matter of, uh, th this is all in the traditional tafsir. In a Zamakhshari, which is reported to have been the Mu'tazali perspective, and Allahu A'lam, because we don't have a lot of Mu'tazali tafsir that survived, is that they say that no, this was an ishtihad on part of Ibrahim, an ishtihad on part of Ishaq, or Ismail, whoever the, 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 the Prophet was, um, and that ultimately when God sends, when God orders them not to do it, that their ishtihad was wrong. So traditional position is that it was not an ishtihad, it was a divine inspiration, wahy. And, and we'll, we'll get as to why. The reported Mu'tazali position according to Razi and according to Zamakhshari is that it was not a wahy. It was as an ishtihad and an ishtihad that ultimately they were wrong about. And God stops it at the last second. The reason the traditional tafsir insist that it was a wahi and not an ishtihad is because the, the step what was Ibrahim prepared, what was Ibrahim about to embark on after the story of the sacrifice, whether it's Ishaq or Ismail, he will become a nation builder, like the Prophet Muhammad And nation building will require that Ibrahim do what became required of the Prophet and his followers. Their commitments and their loyalties have to be unequivocal. They must be willing to sacrifice all for the sake of Allah. There is no hijrah 
no Medina, no Islamic State, if your conviction is not such that, as the Quran says, says elsewhere, the Allah and His Prophets is dearer to your heart than your mother or your father or your spouse or your siblings. So the traditional tafsir is saying it is because of that next step that the story of the sacrifice was not to slaughter a child, but to get the point communicated to Ibrahim and his son, whatever the son was, that the next stage this is the type of conviction that is needed. But more importantly, the reason the Quran says this story in Surah Al-Safat is to tell Muslims that the level of conviction, remember now this is not in the traditional tafsir, but this is what the gloss that I'm Remember, it begins with a Safati Safa. Fazajirati Zajra. It begins with the preparatory steps and the steps of action. And it's saying for this next stage that's coming, this is the level of conviction that is needed. We can only speculate about what I call the Mu'tazali position, the Ishtihadi position. But I would think, because uh, this is not in the text, but I, I'm reasoning through it, that I can imagine that the argument would be even if this is your Ishtihad, and you are willing to act on your ishtihad because of your belief that this doesn't impeach your convictions or the strength of your convictions or your sincerity. In fact, arguably, it might be even stronger evidence of your conviction and your sincerity because you're willing to act on what you believe rather than what you know 100% comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I imagine that would be the argument of the Mu'tazila if they were arguing their position. That, well, that doesn't at all change the dynamics of why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to Muslims about the story of the sacrifice at this point. Now, Do a lot of Sufi tafsir? I can't say that they consider this an allegory, but they imply that um, they imply that. 
the far more important point, whether it happened or not, is not what Allah wants you to think about. And they even say that, like a lot of things about the narratives of prophets, the it is always the anecdote that matters, not the history. And to ask the historical question is wrong-headed and will lead to fitna, will lead to being misguided. But the allegory is to ask the question, are you willing, the child is in, in interestingly in Sufi-esque allegories, the child is a, an embodiment of your indulgences. Your, what you, what you indulge yourself with, not, not a symbol of, of anything good, it's actually always a symbol of how you spoil yourself. And are you ultimately willing to sacrifice the child? Meaning, are you willing to sacrifice your vanities? So in Sufi literature, there's a lot that symbolism is used a lot. Are, when, 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 when even refers to, to the, the sacrifice, meaning are you willing to sacrifice the vanities? Um, I would be remiss if I if I didn't flag a couple of other things. It, notice it says, That Ibrahim's son at this point had grown old enough to actually assist his fathers in his affairs. And a lot of the, the reports that you read talk about how... Um, this, this, why it was particularly hard for Ibrahim to think of the sacrifice, because he waited for a son. This, if, especially if he was Ishaq, he waited for him a long time. This was the son that was a miracle, and now after he befriended his son, in other words, his son now is his partner, his helper, his. Um, his aid um, now he has to think about sacrificing his son in fact some of the uh, you know I don't know if it's authentic or not but uh, one of the more heart touching reports that you read is that uh, before the, the, the Ibrahim tells his son about this his son says you have to do it Ibrahim is reluctant, his son tells him, no, you have to, and then they hold each other, they hug each other, and they both cry. Um, the The presentation of the sacrifice. 
you read some very strange traditions that tell you that the sheep um, that or the goat or that was presented for Ibrahim to sacrifice um, at this point grazed in heaven for 40 years um, some traditions say that this was actually the goat that uh, uh, Cain offered as a sacrifice to God and God rejected and that this animal was grazing for all these years until obviously I mean I, I these traditions are not reliable um, but anyway you, you find them in the traditional books of Tafsir quite often far more importantly is the significance of this event and something that has to be underscored one of the main problems that Ibrahim had with his people was human the practice of human sacrifice to idols and as we know in human history unfortunately human sacrifices is a well-documented universal international around the world part of human history ancient history it was practiced in Sham it was practiced in Iraq it was practiced in Yemen it was practiced in South America it was practiced all over Europe it was practiced everywhere and the narrative of the sacrifice and the became in in Islamic especially Islamic legal discourses um, and to a less lesser extent in Jewish legal discourses a locus for the argument that once that the that the whole symbolic dynamic is that the non-believers were willing to sacrifice the children to appease the idols to get people to stop sacrificing their children you needed to make a moral point it is not that Ibrahim was any weaker than you guys because obviously if Ibrahim is not going to sacrifice his, if, if Ibrahim comes and says you can't sacrifice your children the obvious response is well it's because you're weak and you love your child and you don't want to sacrifice your child this interestingly I mean in, in, in law you find it argued quite often but in Tafsir literature you don't find it uh, said that often I found it in one of the Sufi Tafsir um, that 
the point of this entire thing was that to say Ibrahim in principle would have been willing to sacrifice his child the same way that you guys sacrifice your children. However, God doesn't accept child sacrifice. And God only accepts the sacrifice of animals, specific animals, even in Jewish law as well, rather than human beings. Now, the main difference in Jewish law and Islamic law here is that in Islamic law, there's a higher stage of moral development in that God doesn't accept the sacrifice because it benefits God in any way. But the sacrifice, in order to be accepted by God, it has to go to the destitute and the poor and the needy. In Jewish law, you don't have, the sacrifice doesn't have to go to the needy. In Jewish law, it, which reflects an older legal system, a, a more primitive level of moral development, you can sacrifice the animal to, in the sake of God and, and burn it, and burn the carcass. <clears throat> or you can sacrifice the animal and bury it. Or you can sacrifice the animal and throw it in the sea. In Islam, that would be a sin. In Islamic law, that would be a clear sin. You can't do that. The only, if in fact, if you kill the animal, you have to, you, you can't kill it and just destroy it. But more so, if you want it to be accepted by God, you have to feed the needy. You can't feed, for instance, the class of rabbis, as was often the practice in the temple, is that the animal would be sacrificed and the meat would go to the rabbinic class. In, and and it's, that's one of the things that Jesus is unhappy with um, when... Uh, Jesus is in the temple, is that he's unhappy with the, 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 the fact that animals are sacrificed and the um, guardians of the temple gorge themselves on the meat of animals. So it took things, stages of development. First, the prohibition of human sacrifice, and then in Islamic law, that the sacrifice must... In, purposely go to the needy in order for it to even have any place with God. The reason I pause at this is that we're not going to encounter this again in any other surah, the surah al-Safat. But it is important to understand because when I hear modern Muslims, as I heard in the mosque in New Jersey, the imams stand there and say in a khutbah, we Muslims are willing to sacrifice our sons and, and number one, you're not a prophet. So there is no context in which you're going to get revelation to sacrifice your son. Two, 
human sacrifice has ended a long time ago, and this is the whole thing that Ibrahim. Three is that it's not a matter of you sacrifice. It it was the the purposeful and full-fledged participation of the child, and in some reports, even with the reluctance of Ibrahim and the urging of the son that this was... So, in, in other words, you know, the, the vulgar way that I hear modern Muslims talk about it offends me. And that's why I'm spending all this time on it. You know, you either understand it fully or just shut up about it. You know, if you're ignorant about something, just don't talk about it. Or just study it fully and understand all its nuances. <laughs> okay, so this is... Um, so, this takes us... Salamun ala Ibrahim, 109. Muhsinin, 110. Um, okay. Now, part of the the those who say that this was Ismail, do you see at one twelve where it says وَبَشَّرْنَاهُ بِإِسْحَاقٍ بِإِسْحَاقٍ نَبِيًّا مِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ And one hundred and twelve, it says. Um, And we gave him glad tidings of Isaac, a prophet from among the righteous. Those who say that it was Ismail say, okay, this verse says that the, the glad tidings, the news that he's going to have Isaac, must have happened after this event. So this must be that it happened with Ismail, and then he got news that he's going to have Isaac. Those who disagree says no. It happened with Isaac, and once Isaac passed that test, Ibrahim got the good news that Isaac was now chosen as a prophet. He was chosen as a prophet in part because he passed that test. A lot of reports say the Bible says that Isaac was 13 years old when this happened. And a lot of Islamic traditions say that he was 13 years old. Just so um, age is one of those things, like consciousness, like epistemology, that changes all the time. Um, a 13-year-old, even not just hundreds of years ago, but a 30, a 13 years old just 20 years ago in the villages in Egypt was a full-grown man. Um, while a 13-year-old in the U.S. is a child, a complete child, you know, regardless of whether they, uh, whatever their body does, but their psychology, and it, it's, it, it, it's part of the, the, the social construction of reality. I mean, we, how human beings construct reality affects a lot of things, including the body and 
although we, we don't really know how old Ishaq or Ismail was at the time, whether they were whether it was 13 or 16 or 20 something, as some reports say, Allah Alam. Okay. Now, وَبَارَكْنَا عَلَيْهِ وَعَلَىٰ إِسْحَاقُ وَمِنْ ذُرِّيَّتِهِمَا مُحْسِنٌ وَظَالِمٌ لِنَفْسِهِ مُبِينٌ This is 113. And we blessed him and Isaac, and among their progeny are the virtuous and those who clearly wrong themselves. The importance of this verse is because of the, Israel, of the Jewish doctrine of the chosen people. Asafat here was among a, a series of Quranic revelation that challenged the idea that the progeny of Isaac were chosen by God. So when it says that the progeny of Isaac, there were some of them that were good and some of them were that were not good, it directly clashes with the theology of the chosen people in Judaism. Okay. Then next we move to Moses and Aaron or Harun. And if you notice, we are not given any details about Moses and Harun, except that, and just, you know, take note of this and we'll come back to it again, that When it comes to وَنَجَيْنَاهُمَا وَقَوْمَهُمَا مِنَ الْكَرْبِ الْعَظِيمِ That they and their people, they were saved, and they were victorious, and they were guided to the straight path. وَتَرَكْنَا عَلَيْهِمَا فِي الْآخَرِينَ That they had a living memory. And then, Salamun ala Musa wa Harun, which is repeated time and time again in Surah Al-Safat, that peace unto the Prophet that Surah Al-Safat is talking about. Inna kathalika najdil muhsineen, which again is the same phrase repeated, 121. Um, Thus indeed we recompense the virtuous, And then it will move to Elias. And Elias, as we said, Elijah in the Bible, we are told that he confronts his قوم, is قَالَ لِقَوْمِهِ أَلَا now, it's very interesting that with Elias, we get the specific mention of Baal. And Baal, the reason it's interesting is, in a lot of the traditional tafsir, they tell you that 
there was a god called Baal, but it that's true and and not entirely accurate. It's Baal is Baal, B A L A A L. You could even probably Google it these days. I don't know. Um, unlike modern people, I don't use Google. Um, Sheikh Google, as I've heard him Google referred to. Um, Baal in Aramaic was whatever what whatever was considered a um a superior deity was referred to as Baal. So when it says Atad'una Baalan, but Baal, that concept of a superior deity in all the ancient traditions is interconnected with the practice of human sacrifice. So it is an ancient deity represented in many different forms. Sometimes it's a woman, sometimes it's a man, sometimes it's an idol. Sometimes the idol it looks like it has several wings, several arms, several... Uh, there are even interesting reports that um, somehow an idol that, I don't know, somehow they managed to have a sound coming out of the idol that uh, apparently, reportedly was terrifying. But it, it in historically, it's always associated with human sacrifice. And we are simply told with Elijah or Elias that they defy them. I, I, uh, there is a whole debate about the reference to Ali Yassin. Um, we, we, it's, it's not significant, unless you really want to know about it at the end, then you could ask. But it's, it's, it's a reference to the same progeny of Elias, despite the, the long debate that they go into about what is Ali Yassin and all of that. Okay. And again, we have a repetition of the basic fact in the that this is how we reward the those who do good and then it moves on to Lut. And was Lut a reference to 
إذ نجيناه وأهله أجمعين إلا عجوزا في الغابرين that the, except for his wife who uh, was not a believer and the rest were destroyed and a quick reference that to in 137 and truly you pass by them in the morning again very literal there, there, you find reportedly the Meccans would, as they were traveling back and forth from Sham, they would pass by an area that they knew as the area that was inhabited by the people of Lut. It is not the area that is today in Jordan. Um, uh, what is it called? The um, Petra. 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 Um, but it was close to Petra. <clears throat> anyway. Um, Okay, and then we're going to move to Yunus. Yunus, alayhi salam, there are, inna idha abaqa ila al-fulk al-mashhoon. Al-abaq is an escaped slave. And why does God describe Yunus as if he is an escaped slave? Is because of two versions of of the narrative about Yunus. Um, Yunus is sent to people in today's modern in, in today's Iraq, um, the people of Ninia, and. He lives a long period of time preaching. They mistreat him, they reject the message, and then he finally giving up on them, he tells them that like we saw with uh, Nabi Saleh where he tells them that God's punishment is going to befall you in three days. But the people of Saleh, as you know, they continued to party up to the very last minute and they were destroyed. With Eunice, Eunice tells them that God's punishment is going to go befall them and leaves the town and goes to a high-rise area where he oversees the town. As 
this is version number one of the of the story. As the clouds form, as the people of Ninia see the black clouds form, and they become terrified, and then they start pleading, repenting, in other words. They start pleading for forgiveness, and they swear repentance, and God answers their prayers, and punishment doesn't befall them. When Eunice sees this, he is unhappy. And as elsewhere in the Quran, it describes him as Dahaba Mughadiban, means that he was angry and he left the city and headed to the ocean, meaning he, he wanted to, to leave altogether. In the second version, Eunice tells them that Allah's punishment is going to befall them. And before he has permission to leave, he despairs, he gives up. He says that, okay, it's a matter of days and punishment will befall them. And he picks up and he leaves, leaving behind one of his students. He had two students, uh, the only two that actually converted or listened to him. Unbeknownst to, to Eunice, while after he leaves, that student continues to try with the people of Ninia. And they actually respond to that student. In both versions, the difference between the first version and the second version is that the first version, Eunice is angry that God forgave the people of Ninia. In the second version, Eunice doesn't know that God forgave the people of Ninia, but he gave up on the people of Ninia. He said there's no more hope. In either case, he gets on a ship, the ship runs into a, a storm. Um, in some versions, the, the people on the ship had a superstition that if there is a ship and it runs into trouble in the high seas, that means that there is a sinner on board. And then they go. They they start looking for the sinner. Uh, in another version, it, it's not a matter of a sinner. It's a matter of they 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 believe there's a superstition that if your your ship is in trouble, you have to present the gods with a sacrifice. So you have to throw someone overboard as a sacrifice. So they cast lots, and the lot. The, the lots fall on Eunice, and Eunice feels guilty because he feels that God is angry at him, either because he is mad at the fact that God forgave the people of Ninia, or because he gave up on the people of Ninia and left before he has permission. And 
when he goes overboard, and I mean goes overboard because he's not necessarily thrown overboard in a lot of the reports, he, because of his guilt, he tells the, the, the people on the ship, okay, I'm going to, to jump overboard. Uh, he is swallowed by a whale. Now, the reports differ enormously as to how long he was in the whale's stomach. Some reports say that he was there from morning till the, 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 whale, the whale spits him out in the evening. Some reports say that he was there for three days. Some reports say he was there for 40 days. Allah alam. But in all cases, he comes out of the whale's st stomach ill and emaciated, just remarkably sick. And he is cast on a shore somewhere and Allah then, Yunus was constantly supplicating Allah in the famous dua, La ilaha illa anta subhanak inni kuntu min al-zalimeen. La ilaha illa anta, there is no God but you, subhanak, praise to God, inni kuntu min al-zalimeen, I have been among the unjust. And... Allah forgives Yunus and makes a tree of Yaqteen to grow. And as we said, this tree repels from flies, it bears fruit, and it provides shades from the sun. And the tree of Yaqteen saves Yunus's life. فنبذناه بالعراء وهو سقيم وأنبتنا عليه شجرة من يقطين وأرسلناه إلى مائة ألف أو يزيدون. So after he regains health, he goes back to the people of Ninia. These are the hundred thousand that are referred to in 147, and they follow Yunus and are believers and they live for a period of time until like all other nations there they crumble although the civilization of Ninia seems to have been very impressive um, I don't know if, if the remains survived the last war in Iraq or not but um, I mean you could read uh, about the history of people of Ninia it's very interesting anyway um, Okay. At this point, the stories of the prophets end. But I should t tell you uh, other thing. Uh, one other thing is that some there's a debate in the tradition whether. Ilyas is the same as the prophet Idris. Um, in my opinion, they're, they're, it's clear that they're not. Ilyas is not Idris. 
Elias is Elijah. Idris, in all likelihood, is the same as the prophet. The I don't know how it's pronounced in English, but Enoch, in the Bible, E N O C H. Uh, the prophet Enoch in in the Bible. There's actually a gospel of Enoch that that is non non canonical. Um, but it's uh, it's um, uh, he's a very interesting figure in biblical lore. Um, Eunice is clear the Jonah. Um, Okay, so let's pause here for a second and think back of all the prophets. So we have the prophets presented in Surah Al-Safat in constant motion and action. You have Nuh is sailing in a ship. Ibrahim is destroying idols, being cast in fire, surviving the fire, moving from one area to another. Musa and Harun are also in a state of motion. They, they go from one part of the world to another part of the world. They move, in other words, they travel from Egypt up to the desert to a new phase which will lead their progeny to the building of the Israelite states. And the Israelite states will survive for centuries uh, led by different kings and the entire legacy of Moses and Harun. Yunus Elias, although we don't we're not told much about Elias, but He's also presented in a, as a, a as a, a a prophet who confronts rejected and is saved with a people of all of them. The one that, the only one that we are told was actually successful in his mission is which is Eunice. He's the only one that was successful. 
And at the same time, he is the only one that also, at some point, failed and was forgiven. But what is also interesting is if you go back, you'll find that all of them are mentioned in the context of a, a people that are their family, their followers, that are with them as they move from one place to the other. Musa has Harun, and then he has the Israelites. Yunus is the only one that there's no mention of a family. There's no mention of followers as he leaves the city of Ninia. We don't know anything about him as he returns to the city of Ninia. Now, I go back and I think of the very beginning of Surah Al-Safat, what it alerted me to at the very beginning. Al-Safati Safa. What is the anchor that you begin with? <clears throat> and Azajirati Zajra, the motion, the state of motion, the state of activism in which you are engaged in a dynamic of Zajr, of reform. And ultimately, the result for Taliyati Zikra. In all of these narratives, when you think about As-Safat, you think of the commitment, the sacrifice, the factor of uprooting that might be necessary as a part and parcel of the sacrifice. But ultimately, the one who was successful in this narrative was the one that did not succeed through a, an act of um, cataclysmic divine intervention. <clears throat> and the only other possibility is Ibrahim, although whether Ibrahim was successful or not, I mean, it because he wasn't successful with his original people, but he was successful with other people. 
But again, with Ibrahim, there is no cataclysmic intervening activity. Now, think about this in relation to the Prophet Muhammad In hindsight, Muhammad is successful without a cataclysmic divine intervention. It blows your mind. Those receiving it at the time It is inviting them to reflect on, it's like saying, do your homework in Saf al-Sufuf. Do your homework in organizing your lines. Do your duty and al-Qiyam bizajr. Wazajirati zajra. Do your duty in discharging your obligations in calling for God. Ultimately, although there is no way for them to know this beforehand, is your prophet is not going to require a cataclysmic event to succeed. Your prophet is like Eunice, like Ibrahim, which will be, in hindsight, as Muslims read the Safat, and I am convinced that although none of the traditional tafsir says this explicitly, that it, the, the Muslims knew it intuitively. It's something that you can feel, although you, you might not have explicitly thought of it, but there is a reason that Surah Al-Safat innately relates to every believing Muslim. But we're not done yet, so. Let's, let's move on. Okay. Then, then Surah Al-Safat takes you to something that seems like a familiar, like an identical theme. And that is the, uh, the whole thing about God having the angels being God's daughters. And once again, <clears throat> We have the Quran says that, that how you know do you think that Allah prefers one gender over another? But there is a big difference here. And this ayah, 158, 158, he translates it in study Quran, they have made kinship between him and the jinn, yet the jinn know that they will shortly be arraigned. Uh, 
Okay. So 158, they say, وَجَعْلُوا بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَ الْجِنَّةِ نَسَبًا وَلَقَدْ عَلِمَتْ الْجِنَّةُ إِنَّهُمْ لَمُحْضَرُونَ If the discussion is about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala having angels as daughters, then why would it say they made kinship between him and jinn? Jinn are not angels, and angels are not jinn. Do you see the predicament? Because according to all translations, it will in fact say that it is the jinn that Well, you're puzzled at this until you realize that a jinnati doesn't necessarily mean jinn. وَلَقَدْ عَلِمَتِ الْجِنَّةُ إِنَّهُمْ لَمُحْضَرُونَ الْجِنَّةُ is let me see if I actually copied the language from no I didn't copy the language Is any being that you, um, I'll, I'll use the, the word for now, that you superstitiously ascribe powers of influence. So al-jinn, the word jinn, is, is reportedly derived from the word jinnah. The word jannah is derived from the word jinnah. Jannah is the, world, the place of marvels. The, the, the place of special uh, powers that do, not, that do not ascribe to rationality. So, to تَجْعَلِ <clears throat> is when, if you associate with God any superiors that you believe influence your fate. So, as I was researching this some time ago, one of the most interesting things I read in a poem, the fire that it, 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 it was a poem describing or imagining what the Prophet Ibrahim must have felt as he stood before the fire, before he 
was thrown in it. And the poem says, I, I don't have it memorized, but it said something like that, and he did not fear the fire because to him, the fire is no jinnah. Meaning he is not ascribing to that fire powers that can be shared with God. So, the Nasab that it's talking about here is when you, anything that you attribute powers of affecting your fate and your future, other than God, Anything that you treat as if a god is a jinn. And whatever it is, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, is in fact submissive to God. Any jinn is muhdar. Is, but that's much easier said than done because all of us, Although we theoretically fear God or know God to be supreme, in reality, we submit ourselves to all types of things other than God. Now, And again, the reference, إِلَّا <laughs> So again, the reference, except for Allah's most sincere believers. وَمَا مِنَّا إِلَّا لَهُ مَقَامٌ مَعْلُومٌ This is now 164. And none of us Who's talking here? None of us except that they have a specific station. وَإِنَّا لَنَحْنُ الصَّافُونَ I want to see how the, the Stark Quran translates this. This is one, okay. Uh, none, none among us that he has a known station and truly we are those who are ranged in ranks. وَإِنَّا لَنَحْنُ الصَّافُونَ So a reference to ranks, truly we are those who glorify, who do tasbih. وَإِنْ كَانُوا لَيَقُولُونَ لَوْ أَنَّ عِنْدَنَا ذِكْرًا مِنَ الْأَوَّلِينَ Okay. So, most traditional tafsirs say, when it says, وَمَا مِنَّا إِلَّا لَهُ مَقَامٌ مَعْلُومٌ It's talking about Angels and the angels say we all have a known station. Uh, 
that we organize ourselves in ranks. That the angels are the ones that are, they say, and we are the ones that do tasbih. But that assumption is because of um, it seemed that it would be unlikely that anyone else would say other than angels or other than angels but look at the language again it is not necessarily so so وَمَا مِنَّا إِلَّا لَهُ مَقَامٌ مَعْلُومٌ It is human beings themselves that could be saying this in the hereafter. You will know your maqam in the hereafter. وَإِنَّا لَنَحْنُ الصَّافُونَ وَإِنَّا لَنَحْنُ الْمُسَبِّحُونَ وَلَنَحْنُ الصَّافُونَ could refer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as organizing people in their ranks. وَإِنْ كَانُوا لَيَقُولُونَ لَوْ أَنَّ عِنْدَنَا ذِكْرًا مِنَ الْأَوَّلِينَ This is a reference to human beings. That human beings will say, if only we had a guidance sent to us, like the early people, لَكُنَّا عِبَادَ اللَّهِ الْمُخْلَصِينَ We would have been God's devout followers. The most interesting thing about these verses is who is it? It can't be talking about the Meccans because the Meccans did receive a zikr. Possibly it's talking about those who before the Prophet Muhammad said if only God would send a new prophet we would follow the new prophet but when the new prophet came they didn't follow. But in Sufi-esque literature they point to something that another obvious possibility is that so many Muslims or so many people believe if they, if only they would have been sent in the right age, they would have been truly exceptional Muslims. And in Sufi literature, they point out the obvious, that this is remarkably arrogant, because you could have been sent in the age of the companions, or in the age of whatever, and you could have ended up 
making a complete mess out of yourself. Completely miss the boat on everything. Okay. I, I will finish the surah and then I'll, I'll wrap it up and tie all the loose ends that I've left. So then it continues وَتَوَلَّعَنْهُمْ So one eighty is what I told you. This expression occurs only in Surah Al-Saffat. Subhana Rabbika Rabbil which is translated in the study Quran as glory be to the Lord, the Lord of might above that which they ascribe. Um, Subhanallah, the Lord of Al-Izza, well, it has a significance in this context. Amma yasifun, wasalamun ala al-mursaleen and Peace on to be all the prophets, the messengers. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And then it, it ends with, with Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Okay, so what does Surah Al-Safat accomplish? It starts out with alerting to a dynamic. As-Safat is the ranks, the preparation, the process that you Muslims are engaged in at the right now, as despite the persecution, the planning for what to do next. Fazajirati Zajra. This is precisely the examples of the prophets that you are presented with. Examples of prophets in which involves a considerable amount of patience, a considerable amount of faith, a considerable amount of sacrifice, and a constant dynamic of motion and change and perseverance. All those prophets, Ibrahim went through a test that repeatedly will confront so many Muslims as they have to make hard choices between family members and loved ones. But, as the Quran itself tells Muslims, if it hadn't been for the sacrifices and the conviction of Ibrahim, who was al-Muslimin? He's the one that called you Muslims. You are but the progeny of Ibrahim. Yunus, although looked at one point like all lost was all hope was lost, 
he is thrown overboard, he's swallowed by a fish. It is the most mundane, Shajarat al is known to Arabs, it's a tree that a lot of them own. But God works through the simplest methods, and it is ultimately Yunus, the one who looked like a complete failure, and who was helped not by massive, huge miracles, like Noah, or like Musa, or like, but by Shajarat Yaqteen. Now, you could look to the blessings of Allah that are there, ready to help those who walk the path with Allah, or you could confront the ugliness of something far more terrifying, and that's Shajarat al-Zakum. It is, and in fact, in the Muslim imagination, after Surah al-Safat, we find that Shajarat al-Zakum is mentioned in numerous poems. In poetry of Hassan ibn Sabit, in the poetry of Farazdaq, in the poetry of Jarir, it, it, the, the juxtaposition of Al-Zakum to Al-Yaqteen, and the, 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 how, how modest Al-Yaqteen is. Al-Yaqteen doesn't look like an impressive tree. It looks, it's a, it's a plant, that grew, it's a tree that grows close to the earth. And although it is remarkably impressive in its qualities, but it doesn't capture the eye, it doesn't, it's, it's not a, the tree of rich people, it is not the plant that is nurtured by rich people, and so on. Moreover, notice that human beings are not pro isolated products of the self. they are always under the influence of others. And be on the same theme of sacrifice and who your circles are. Be very careful that when you start thinking about your circles, that you preempt the conversation that you will either have in hellfire about who your associates were and blame one another or that you would have even if you have it in Jannah but you are you've lived too close to the edge because some you're telling associates if it hadn't been for the moral position we've taken would have gone end up if it hadn't been for God's grace would have gone end up where you are Ask yourself these questions now before you are forced to ask them in the hereafter. There's another juxtaposition. If we die and we are resurrected, 
It's repeated twice. That question is repeated twice in Surah Al-Safat. This question is repeated five times in the Quran. Two of them is in Surah Al-Safat. Verse 16 and verse 53. But there is a big difference between the two. In 16, it says, If we die and resurrected, Is it that we, if we die and we disintegrate, is it that we are going to be resurrected? But the second time, in 53, when the same question is repeated, it says, Is it that we are going to be held accountable? If you examine the posing of the question in 16 and the posing of the question in 53, you're struck by something that is quite remarkable. Philosophically, it is the Madinun, it is the idea of there has to be resurrection to pay the bill, for better or for worse, is that makes, underscores the meaning of life. The question when it's posed first, is posed superficially. Oh, is it an, an issue of God's ability? Well, of course it's God, God is able to resurrect you. That, that is a non-issue. The real issue, the real invitation to reflect upon is the necessity of justice and settling your accounts upon resurrection. And that's a much harder question. That's the, that's the question that, if anything, will get you to take al-istifaf with zajr, with dhikr, seriously, it will be that. But as Surah al-Safat reminds you again and again, As-Safati Safa, Wa-Zajirati Zajra, Wa-Taliyati Dhikra, requires Ibad Mukhlasin, the pure, Al-Abd Al-Mukhlas, is Al-Abd that purifies the self, not simply someone that follows commands, but someone that develops a, a complete understanding of the role as a member of Asaf, or as a member of the dynamic of Zaj, or as a member of Dhikr. fully morally conscientious human being. And remember that much of what will tempt you will approach you from a yameen, from things that you find to be tempting. Not necessarily tempting physically, 
but tempting even intellectually. People that will try to make the path of wrongfulness sound logical, even sound necessary, and even perhaps sound ethical. But as long as you, and this is one of the, the, the as long as you understand that in your relationship with Allah, and this is why Surah Al-Safat mentions or comes at the end, after telling you all the prophets, comes back to, can God be compared to human attributes like having children? Godliness is unique and singular logic. It is comparable to no other logic on earth. If you fall into the trap of thinking of God in human terms, you will never find God. If you fall into the trap of posing the silly unanswerable questions and imagining that God is takes sides, picks chosen people, picks chosen races, that God doesn't care about, about justice, but God will play favorites. If you don't understand Tanzihullah as appropriately and properly as you must, then this whole path that awaits you is no longer there. You go astray. And this is precisely why Surah Al-Safat comes and ends in this particular phase. Subhana Rabbika Rabbil Izzati Amma Yasifun. Allah, true glory comes from Allah. True honor comes from Allah. Who wants izzah, فَلِلَّهِ الْعِزَّةُ جَمِيعًا That Allah is the source of all honor. But understand what tanzih is. There is no comparison, no comparable, which means that your relationship to Allah must be equally pristine and clean and fully consciously adopted. I'm forgetting one thing.
Okay. Finally, this issue of maqam, I want to come back to it. Because Surah Al-Safat goes back to the issue of As-Saf wal-Maqam. In, in Sufi Asklature, this at, at 164, 165, 166, they, they launch into a long discussion about they go from one maqam to another to another. You have to adopt the entire Sufi perspective of growth in the maqamat. But I think that the fact that Surah Al-Safat goes back and invites a reflection upon, I don't want to say dogmatically, but to understand that same theme of a Safati Safa, to understand the role that you play and what that role entails. And that role might entail at times being in a position of the superior, giving the commands, and other times in the position of someone who's taking the commands. It's precisely what we see unfolding with the Prophet and the Sahaba afterwards. This, which is something that, that impresses all of us when we read the seerah. Is this understanding that as long as they're performing a meaningful role, that's all, as long as that role is a role that benefits the entire message, is that's all that matters to them. It's something that impresses us, although we can't, we, we're, modern Muslims have not been able to, to replicate it. But think of any of any civilizational success by any people, the first thing these people are able to successfully adopt as a social ethic is precisely the logic of a soft thought. Each person in their proper role performing their specific task, which they do faithfully and diligently, Once roles become ill-defined and mixed up, that civilization crumbles. I don't think, I think that that was an intentional message in Surah Al-Safat. And that's why Surah Al-Safat was part of what built the Islamic civilization. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, we're done.
Sorry. Okay, well, just to start, when the rest of the students come back, it's fine. Does anyone have a question from our current student group? Okay. I'm just going to take from interactive. Oh, you do? Yeah. I was just looking if you wanted to go first. So speedy. <laughs> um, do you see a connection between... The example that you gave in, in the beginning of, or your interpretation of the example given in the beginning of the person who's in heaven who looks down and sees his, com his companion in hell, with Prophet Yunus, who, because it, you're, I think you were saying that that one companion who is in heaven came from, compa came from uh, uh, companions who all went the wrong way and he resisted. Mm -hmm. That one, even though, and that ended up him up in heaven. But with Eunice, it's like he was all like you were saying; he was all alone. He had mm -hmm. nobody, and unlike the other prophets, and that's also when the the one example where then it brings up the tree that's in heaven. So I was wondering if if you think that there's anything there or. I'm I'm not sure because I mean it is okay so first sort of Safat it is really interesting that it it focuses on the idea of influences it it and it if we situate it as when it was revealed that makes perfect sense because all of these Muslims were living in the midst of they were they were going through a very difficult time and there were all types of influences that surrounded them and um, so the influence of those who end up in hell with those who influenced them so that that's what then those who managed to resist the influence and made the right call. Now, it is interesting that Yunus is is alone when he leaves the city of Ninia and he's alone when he is spat out by the whale and the tree of Yaqteen doesn't grow in heaven, it grows on earth. And it, it, but it is a gift from Allah for those who, who reflect. I mean, Yunus could have, if he was a different person, then he, he, you know, he could have attributed all of this to coincidence. Oh yeah, I, I was, you know, I, the, the whale spat me out and then I ended up somewhere and I found a tree of Yaqteen and it's all just coincidence. But that's not how a prophet thinks and that's not how Abadullah and Mukhlasin would think. The, the, those who are truly sincere. They, they know that every good in their life is intentionally there and every bad is intentionally there. Um, 
but why is Yunus alone and the beginning of the surah talks about influences? I don't know. I mean, I'm, the, the reason I'm, 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 I'm hesitant is that we don't know about enough about the Prophet Yunus. Um, you know, the big question in my mind is, did he, he left the city of Ninia without a family. He was alone. Now, why didn't he have a family? Is it that his fa he had a family and his family turned against him and wouldn't follow him? Or is it that he was always a loner? Um, and I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah. It is... It is remarkable that, you know, he lives all these years, no one answers him, no one accepts him. And of all the prophets, then he's the one that has the most marvelous success when, when they all can, they all, you know, repent. Um, the least one could say is that Eunice is a lesson in never giving up. I mean, you you try till the, your very last breath, and you accept that Allah. The consequences belong to Allah; they don't belong to you. Um, and that du'a, by the way, it's. It became one of the most powerful du'a that La ilaha illallah, La ilaha is a du'a one that one should repeat often and one should reflect upon often. The, the no God but you, Subhanak, I have been among the unjust. But don't just say it, reflect on it ponder the ways of injustice. Um, be, before we do uh, another question, let me just say uh, a disclaimer. Uh, last halakha, there was a question about meaning of life, and and I, in, in responding to this question, I said something to the effect that from a philosophical perspective, it, if you truly don't want life, then the honorable thing to do is to kill yourself. And I just want to be uh, emphasize that I, 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 I obviously am not encouraging people to commit suicide. I hope no one understood me as encouraging people to commit suicide. And there is a huge difference between what I'm talking about, what I was, was talking about, and suicide because of depression or illness. Those who are depressed and commit suicide because they're depressed, they suffer from an illness and they need to get treatment. The, what I was talking about is more akin to when a samurai kills himself. So he doesn't kill himself because he's depressed. He kills himself because the, he doesn't want to accept a, a situation of dishonor what he perceives to be something dishonor, dishonorable. Or like the Jews who 
collectively committed suicide in the Masada when they were resisting the Romans and there was no hope of victory. And rather than fall captives to the Romans, they decided to kill themselves. There is a huge difference between discussions about exterminating one's life out of principle and exterminating one's life out of depression. Depression is an illness. If you're depressed, get treated. There's, uh, um, and there's a world of difference between philosophical discourses and the world of psychology and the world of emotions. So, please, no, don't, I hope no one listens to what I said and then decides, well, you know, he's saying kill himself. No, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. Don't kill yourself. Um, it just, do not live life and whine about it. It is, I think it is dishonorable to live life and continue whining about it. I don't like living. I hate living. Stop whining. You know, if you need treatment, get treated. Uh, but whining is a dishonorable thing. And don't confuse between philosophy and whining. A lot of punks. I, I describe students who philosophize on no basis whatsoever. In other words, they're ignorant and they think they're philosophizing. I call them punks, intellectual punks. Um, there's a huge difference between whining and real philosophy. Uh, so a lot of punks whine and they think they're saying something smart, but they're whining. And I, I don't respect whining. I, I've never did. Um, and, you know, if I could flunk every whiner and I, I, I meet in life, I would. So, but they're not all in my classes, so I can't flunk them. But my, my, my response to whining is F. You get an F, you get an F minus. If there was a lower grade, I would give it. So, just don't whine. Sheikh. Um, just to follow up to that, because someone asked it, which I think kind of goes to what you were saying. Um, they asked if, if Eunice jumped overboard because of his guilt, should we commit suicide because of our guilt or sins? And are we allowed to com commit suicide? I don't know if you just want to just finish that. Oh, my God. No, you're not allowed to commit suicide. For one, Islamically, if you're ill meaning God knows that you have mental illness and you commit suicide, you, you know, that's up to God how God deals with that. But God is most just. But uh, committing suicide is one of the biggest sins. Um, so if you believe in God, and or if you commit suicide and it turns out that there is a God and you are wrong if you don't believe in God, uh, you're in trouble. Uh, it, it's, life is... Is, is extremely valuable and extremely precious. That's uh, one thing. The other thing is that there is no evidence that Eunice, there is, a, there is a big difference between Eunice jumping overboard because of his guilt and 
Yunus, the the merchants on that ship were going to throw someone overboard. And they took a lottery. And in some reports, the lottery was repeated three times, and each time it was Eunice. You know, there is no indication that if it hadn't been for the storm, and if it hadn't been for the lottery, that Eunice would have simply jumped in the sea. If Eunice wanted to do something like that, he wouldn't have gotten in a ship trying to get someplace. Um, in some reports, he was trying to get to India or, you know, the, whatever the, 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 the truth of these reports. Some reports he was just trying to get to Iran, but anyway, uh, Persia. Um, I hope that it's not understood that I was saying that Eunice was effectively committing suicide. The the report the what the the reports say is that once he realized that it was him, um, he didn't he wasn't going to fight them. He he walked the plank. You know the the walk the plank type thing. Um, that's precisely what it is. It's you know. And. So no, yeah, don't, if you are seriously having thoughts of committing suicide, see a professional, you, then you need prof- you need to see a professional. Uh, too many people in our modern age imagine themselves to be philosophically sophisticated. Uh, you know, I can give you some texts that will test whether you're philosophically competent or not. If you can read them and understand them, then you're philosophically advanced. If you can't, which is the vast majority of people, then you're not. And leave philosophy on the side. Hey, Sheikh, do you want to? Did, did I say don't kill yourself enough times? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't want that on my conscience. Oh my God. I wanted to follow up with Sharif's question because I was wondering something similar and I, I'm afraid I may have missed it um, just generally. But um, uh, were you drawing the uh, a connection between um, the, fe- the prominent featuring of the idea of Azwaj? Um, you know, the partners, the counterparts, uh, with the stories of all of the prophets, because their counterparts and most of them, Harun and Musa and Ishaq or Ismail and Ibrahim and Nuh and Ahli and all of these kinds of things, uh, most of them had a good relationship with their counterpart that Mm -hmm. propelled them towards seeking out God's will. Mm -hmm. And in the rare occasion, for example, in Lot or I guess Nuh's wife or decided to to make the wrong choice in terms of the association but then again that leaves the difficult question of Eunice of what exactly uh, was his partner if that is true Um, uh, and I think you kind of answered in that you said we don't know a lot lot about Eunice but I figured I'd ask anyways maybe is there anything regarding Eunice and the relationship between his students that you you mentioned or um, 
or is it maybe the relationship that he had with the people on the ship that affected him in one sort of way or even a third option you know that his his associate in the end was Allah and that is what made him even when he was alone and he didn't have a qawm or an ahl or anything to help you know re-guide him back onto the the right you know trajectory was it in that he just realized that Allah is enough in that sense hmm. that's a really interesting point um, um okay so um first there are there's a, a version of the story that says that Yunus it's it, it doesn't look like Yunus had a family because if Yunus had a family if Yunus had a family there's no mention of it in any of the traditions um it's unusual for a near eastern man to be a loner uh, um, at, at the age that he apparently left the city in, which some reports it was he was in his 30s, some reports say that he was in his late 20s or some mid-20s, something like that. Um, but, okay, the versions that talk about him having two <clears throat> converts, two students, uh, they, they, we are only told that these students one of them was intellectually inclined and one of them was not intellectually inclined but was uh, abid was a a, uh, a person who worshiped and that the that person that that student when Eunice left town having despaired and giving up that student, the Abid, left as well. But he didn't leave with Yunus, he went separately, somewhere else. And the one who left, stayed behind was the Alim. The thing though is, this, this version is probably not the more authentic one. The more authentic one is probably the one that he had no followers. And that, uh, he when he despaired he was really on his own and when he goes on the ship he's with strangers um because the they they ask him who are you but once they get into trouble and they start taking law lottery they start interrogating who are you and what's your story and where are you from and they they're in the scene for a very short period of time, basically, as just pa people on the ship. And, you know, once he's thrown overboard, that's it. So it's, it's, it's interesting, um, the idea of, you know, w did this mean that he developed a different type of relationship with Allah? I don't know. Um, I mean, I. The interesting when I think of the prophets that uh, had the strongest, or those who are often 
talked about in the tradition as having the strongest relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You think of Ibrahim, you think of Musa, you think of Ayyub. Um, you don't normally think of Eunice. But it, it, it is, I mean, it is fascinating that Eunice is is the 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 one who is mentioned in Surah Al-Safat um, as without a qawm. I mean, maybe his qawm is the people of Nenya once he goes back to them. And um, so I, I don't know. I mean, this is where it would be worth more investigation. Um, and my suspicion is that once Surah Al-Safat is looked at from the point, from the perspective that I set out, I think that it will it will yield to many more insights. Um, you know, it's like being put on the your your foot on the right direction. Um, and clearly, Surah Al-Safat is is is. is is ripe for mining, for a, a lot of lessons, um, and and as I feel often with a lot of these sore that I've just only touched the surface of what they have to yield and what they can teach. question is just as brief as just whether or not uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim was a prophet at the time that he destroyed the idols or not. Uh, whether the, uh, uh, Ibrahim salam was a prophet at the time he destroyed the idols, that's a really good question and although you have conflicting reports, I think he was not. Uh, what was the dhikr? Is it 
Yeah, it is. I I I actually prepared one eighty to one eighty two, but um, as I as the hours passed and I got tired, I shortened it to one eighty. Okay, we're actually out of time, so there, we're gonna there, have to cut it. Should I just do one? Or should I do Joe's? Do do yeah. Hold on. Okay, I'm gonna do Joe's since it's usually Joe's. here in person. Okay, thanks for such a special halakha. It seems that the recurring phrase "illa ibad Allah al mukhlasin which is used five times, is never used in the surah to describe the prophets themselves, but rather the followers of prophets. Prophets are described variously as min ibadina al-mu'minin or as muhsinin, but the specific attribute of a mukhlas is not applied to any of Ilyas, Noah, Abraham, Lot, etc. This is striking because one would surely expect that the prophets would be those described and praised for worshiping God in a particularly special and sincere way. Does the professor have any thoughts on this, and how would this fit into the main themes and lessons of the surah? Okay, I'm I'm happy you noticed that it, it is. You're absolutely right that uh, is repeated consistently, not about the prophets, but about common people, regular people, and. And considering that it is time and that it, it, this phrase is repeated a number of times, five times, as well as Safat. So, in many ways, Surah Safat is underscoring th that sincerity is necessary for the stage of preparation, sincerity is necessary for the stage of actual action, and sincerity is necessary for what comes, what follows from that, the, the, which is exemplified in dhikr, and um, the the fruit of achieving godliness, if you will. I think in this context, if you look at every time that Ibad Allah Mukhlasin is is used, it is it it um how do I put it? It is as if appealing to the normal human being, the if if it was used in the context of the of prophets, then they would be Abdullah al-Mukhlas because they are chosen as prophets. Then the 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 Mukhlas, and especially because of the the word Mukhlas. Uh, not al-mukhlasin, but al-mukhlasin. Then al-mukhlasin would become people who are chosen. They are occupy a, a, a special position because they're prophets. But it is extremely significant that no, it uses al-mukhlasin to 
in reference to common people, it's like saying you can become chosen through your diligence and your sincerity and your hard work. So I think it is quite intentionally avoids using Ibadullah al-Mukhlasin in reference to the prophets. Because it wants to tell you, no, it's not about being selected like prophets are selected. It, it is about you can one, be one of these habad and and become in a special position vis-a-vis -vis the divine. Um, the prophets have their own deal, but now we're talking about you. So I'm, I'm happy you raised this and you noticed this because it is one of the most striking thing about Surah Al-Safat is that although it tells us stories of prophets, but it, it is about us. It is about the, the the common people with all their struggles and all their doubts and all their influences and about the ability of common people to become in a special status vis-a-vis -vis Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thanks, Sheikh. Another great halakha. We'll see you guys on Tuesday for a new surah. And enjoy the rest of your weekend.